Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are talking about the anime sensation that's sweeping multiple nations, Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba, the movie, Mugen Train, which means Infinity Train, but they don't translate the word Mugen. And if you don't know that, what that word means in Japanese, and you go see the movie with the English subtitles, they actually never translate it for you, which is kind of weird. But other than that, this movie slaps. It is a great fucking movie. Great fucking movie. We are going to be talking about that in depth. If you missed last week's show, we talked all about Kimetsu no Yaiba Season 1. This is, of course, the anime that has become... The anime manga movie property that has become the most popular thing in Japan right now and increasingly in lots of other countries around the world. Um, and yeah, so the movie came out in uh, North American theaters this weekend, and you and I both got to see it. Uh, and it was our first time back in a movie theater in over a year. Mm-hmm. Damn. Yeah, no, it, it, was a, it was a great experience in a lot of different ways, of just being like, oh, I can, like, be a human being that exists in, like, a public sphere and not, like... <laughs> you know, die from the stress of it all um, outside of the context of work. Yes. Yes, uh, it was very nice. And I'm sure we will talk about that whole experience later when we get into the movie. We'll just save that for later, I guess. Um, but yeah, this movie's great. That'll be our topic today. A couple other little pieces of news and of stuff, but we will get to that soon enough. A couple pieces of housekeeping. Um, as I reminded you all last week, we have a new YouTube channel, the Weekly Stuff Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, it's a, that and Weekly Suit Gundam are now two separate channels, and the Weekly Stuff Podcast channel has a bunch of good stuff on it. I've continued updating it with new playlists and the videos that go along with that. Uh, three big new ones went up this week, Sean, that took a lot of time and effort. Uh, one was we got our uh, Doctor Who playlist for the 13th Doctor Up, Jodie Whittaker, which um, is very fun because you get to go from us being very excited about this new era of Doctor Who to the episode where you review all of season, season, season 12 that I have not watched because I'm dead inside uh, and you are just kind of sad and angry. Um, and I actually re-listened to that episode and it's very funny. Uh, the 11th Doctor playlist, the Matt Smith playlist, is now complete and... Uh, that one and the other playlist, the Marvel Cinematic Universe playlist, which includes reviews of every single Marvel movie, mm -hmm. all 23 of them. We have done all of them on the podcast. They are all in that playlist, along with a couple of the TV shows like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Um, these are all up there in those playlists. And to complete that playlist and the 11th Dr. Matt Smith playlist, I had to go into the vault, Sean. Uh, for those who don't know, before we did the Weekly Stuff podcast... We did uh, a couple of kind of, I don't know, trial balloon podcasts when we were in high school. Uh, the first one was called the Monthly Ten Podcast. And then we realized, and the whole concept of that was we did a top ten list every month. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that's a dumb idea for a podcast. That's completely unsustainable. And so that became the Monthly Stuff Podcast. And then that became, 
by way of WGTC Radio, which was the site I worked for, the Weekly Stuff podcast. Um, but all of that early stuff I have long since taken offline uh, because it's uh, some of it's bad and old and involves people who definitely did not consent to have their, their voices online for 10 plus years. Yeah, to give um, people like some context on what we mean by that podcast was unsustainable by its very concept was, I mean, how many episodes did it take us, Jonathan, to get to like top 10 best video game controllers? Which that was is the second episode. Yeah. That's the first one you were on. That was because yeah. Sean was not the initial co-host. There was no one co-host. I did it with different people every month. Um, and then once I started doing it with you, I was like, oh, well, you and I are just going to do this together because it's better. Um, yeah. But yeah, Video Game Controllers was the second one. Yeah, that yeah, was Not bad. to speak yeah, poorly of Pastor Jonathan too much, but it's not, yeah, like not a great concept for a podcast topic is let's sit and talk about 10 video game controllers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe now we say that though, someone's going to ask us to revisit that topic. So I remember, I remember waxing philosophically on the virtues of the eight way D pad of the Sega Genesis controller. That's my only memory of that podcast. Yes. Um, anyway, but all of those are offline, but to complete the 11th doctor and MCU playlists, I did pull a couple out of the vault and these are now presented on YouTube as weekly stuff from the vault episodes uh, with special um, episode art that involves the Scrooge McDuck money vault. I was very happy to get to make that. Um, and there are five of those in the 11th Doctor playlist because that includes... This is one I'm actually glad we have out there again, Sean, because you and I have mentioned it several times. Our original Doctor Who retrospective where we went through all of the classic Doctors and you picked stories and it was kind of a precursor to Doctor Who 101 um and yeah i'm glad and it's the first time you and i ever talked about doctor who on a podcast so i'm glad mm -hmm. that's there uh and then a couple of 11th doctor ones like we talked about the christmas specials we talked about series six um and then you get into the weekly stuff era and we talk about series seven week by week all the way through matt smith's regeneration and then for the mcu stuff i was i actually didn't remember we'd done all this but we did one on the avengers when it came out big spoiler cast that was like the first movie we ever did new as a spoiler cast and then we had also done one before that where we reviewed all the Phase 1 movies as a little retrospective. And so that, with that in the MCU playlist, that YouTube playlist now has everything. Uh, from Iron Man 1 to Spider-Man Far From Home, which is the most recent MCU movie, all in one place. Uh, I was surprised. We never missed one. We have a podcast on every single one of those fuckers, and that's kind of crazy. I mean, they're like some of the only movies I ever went to the movie theater to go see because I'd go to see them with my dad, so... Yeah. yeah. So so it's yeah. By by virtue of just like we talk about the movies we see at the movie theater on this podcast, inevitably we would end up talking about all the Marvels. <laughs> yes, exactly. So all of that's up. I'm not sure where I'm going to be going with like playlists and uploads in the future. I have to kind of now I might just be starting the inevitable slog of getting in all the like holes in the catalog and just getting everything on the YouTube channel. That's going to take a while. But man, there's a lot of good stuff there and a lot of comprehensive playlists of things we've talked about over the years. So I am happy to have all that stuff up. And those From the Vault episodes might be a, might be a fun kick. If there's one I recommend listening to, it's the one on Doctor Who Christmas specials because it's the one where you on the fly coin the name The Monthly Stuff Podcast making fun of the concept of the monthly 10, which we have long since stopped doing. Um, and and we, over the course of that podcast, just decide we're going to change the name. It's very funny. Um, and, and yeah. And then we're also, like, at the end of that, talking about, like, video games that were new in 2011. And it's just, oh, my God, we're old, Sean. 
You were talking about the old Republic and how excited you were to be in the beta. That's what oh, that episode wow. is. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, because that would have been... Yeah. I was in the beta, like, first semester in the dorm rooms. I remember playing that on my laptop. So, fuck. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Yep. <laughs> so... From the vault, it's all up there on the YouTubes. <clears throat> it's fun. I'm glad that's there. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Marvel stuff, have you seen the Disney Plus shows yet? No, I have not. I, I still have okay. not re-upped my Disney Plus subscription to watch those yet. You should probably do that so we can do an episode on them together. Mm -hmm. I would like, before Black Widow comes out, to do kind of a roundup on all that stuff. When, when is um, that? When is Black Widow? It's like June. Okay. I can um, do that. You got plenty of time. WandaVision's pretty good. Falcon and the Winter Soldier's pretty bad. Um, that's, yeah. They're not that good, but there you go. <laughs> okay. Thanks that's for the good, so strong recommendation. Makes me really want to watch them right now so we can do a podcast on them. <sighs> you know, people are going to ask about it since we mentioned Marvel. And there's these two shits. The first time we've, like, missed a new Marvel thing other than, like, Iron Fist, which doesn't count because it it's not real. Um, all right. So, Sean... What about stuff? What have you been up to other than just enjoying a really good Demon Slayer movie? Well, yeah, I, I guess I've done a, a couple of things. Uh, I'll, go, I'll start with, like, the main one first is uh, I played through Resident Evil 7 this week. Um, Ooh, Yes, because nice. Resident Evil 8 is coming out in a couple of weeks, two weeks now, I think. Um, it's, like, early, early May. Uh, and I realized I still, like, Resident Evil 7 is a game... I have been meaning to play every year since it came out four years ago now. That game came out in 2017, Jonathan. That game is four Fuck. years old this year. Um, and and I do this foolish thing where I'm like, well, I'll wait until October and play it because it's Halloween and I like Halloween stuff. The problem is I've gone into a profession that October is like a massive crunch uh, month for teachers because it's like when the first sort of like units are wrapping up of the semester. So there's a lot of grading. That's when like parent-teacher conferences are. Um, like a lot of major staff meetings start happening in October because then you get to see like what are the issues that have propped up that semester. So it's like a, a incredibly bad time to make the decision, let me do something extra or like let me make time specifically for this one special thing. Like for context, the only video game I played for the literally the entirety of October last year was just Genshin Impact and that's it. Because it's, and that was just like, here's like an hour a day just because it's like that that is like the crunch like hell month of the fall semester. Um, so I like just could never get around to actually making the time to play Resident Evil 7 because also when you're like exhausted um, and you're stressed out about work, the last thing you want to do is like play a horror game because they're like stressful, particularly the beginning of Resident Evil 7 is stressful because you don't even have weapons or anything. You're just running away from uh, enemies and stuff. So I just never made time for it. And then I decided, fuck it. I really want to play Resident Evil 8 because it looks good. I'm going to play Resident Evil 7. So I basically just this past week. Um, every night after dinner, when it would get dark outside at about 7.30 or so, I would put like two hours into Resident Evil 7 and then go to bed. And that is like a perfect way to play that game because my overall thesis on Resident Evil 7 is it is like a perfectly paced video game where each section of the game took me almost exactly on the fucking dot two hours to finish. Um, it is so perfectly paced that you are introduced to a new area, a new enemy, Usually, like, over the course of that, you get a new weapon or something, and it's sort of a slightly different mechanic, and then they evolve it, and then they you finish it within two hours, and then you move on to the next thing. And so if you play it in just two-hour chunks every night, you do four to five nights, and you are done. And, like, that is what I just did for basically each day um, over the past week. Uh, and that game is fantastic. It is so fun. 
Um, it is such an impressive, um, obviously this is like a four-year-old take at this point, but it's a really impressive like evolution of and kind of reimagining of Resident Evil as a franchise that it takes the core of specifically Resident Evil 1 and then applies that to how has the horror genre changed in terms of um, some of like the tropes you see that come about because of the influence of Saw and stuff like that. So you see a little bit more of that kind of aesthetic uh, get in there. And then also where have horror video games gone, which is almost universally into first person um, off of the back of games like Amnesia of the Dark Descent or like PT more recently. Uh, and so moving Resident Evil into first person, updating some of the horror elements, but keeping the like B-movie kind of cheesy elements in there and the like dedication to it being like a combat-based game. So it is not something where you have to, you're like running away all the time or like there are long stretches of the game where you have no weapons. That's only the very beginning. So it's really a game based about you starting the game very weak, scavenging for resources, trying to like, you know, save every single bullet you can get. And then by the end of the game, if you played it well, you are just armed to the fucking teeth. You've got like seven guns. You've got a fucking flamethrower. You've got a grenade launcher that shoots <laughs> grenades that you manufacture that have nerve toxin in them. Which So it's like you are literally like breaking fucking Geneva conventions. You're such a like wild badass by the end of this game just going around murdering monsters. And it's like that arc, which is to me very much what Resident Evil is about. Like all those games feel like that. Um, like that's one of the things I love about Resident Evil 4 is starting early in that game and you've got a pistol and a knife and you were like struggling to defeat simple enemies and by the end of the game you are just like bulldozing through everything because you've mastered the mechanics and you've done a good job of like hoarding resources and stuff so by the time you get to that last phase you just feel very powerful um, and that's what Resident Evil 7 sort of does in a slightly different format with the way they updated the game uh it's it's fantastic yeah i highly recommend it uh even if you're someone who's not particularly good with horror stuff it's only really the first like 90 minutes or so or more intense on the horror level and then past that it's like i think pretty approachable for people even if you're not super comfortable with horror um it's definitely not like as approachable in that sense as a resident evil 4 which i would say is like hard barely a horror game um, yeah it's 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 like it's it's gothic, but it's not. I don't think it's scary. Yeah, so it's like it's not that. Like you, there are still like some jump scares and stuff like that, but it's far away from something like an Amnesia of the Dark Descent or even a Silent Hill game. In that, like the horror side of it starts becoming less and less oppressive as you go on. Um, and so, if you're someone that's not super comfortable with that, if you push past the first hour or so, I think most people would still like have a, a really good time with that game. Yeah, so I've been on an interesting arc with that game too, Sean, because you might remember, you and listeners, last year during the pandemic, I got in on a kick where I played Residence e Evil 1, 2, 3, 4. I played the remake of 2. I was like, this is amazing. I went back and played the remake of 1. Then the remake of 3 came out. Then I played 4. Then I bought 5 and hit a brick fucking wall because that game's terrible. Yeah. I have 6, haven't played it. Uh, and then I also got seven on Xbox, um, so I have all of them on my Xbox. Um, then, but but I for whatever reason, other stuff came in. I never got to seven. Uh, then, like when we got our PS fives, um, I think isn't Resident Evil Seven part of the PS Plus collection? I think it might be. I don't know. I, I bought I that so. game forever ago, so I don't. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. So so I put it on my PS five also because that's like the system I have like on all the time now so i'm like oh, i'll just play it on here because it's on ps plus and it'll probably run a little better on my ps5 which is a new console 
Then now I've been really into playing first person shooter games on my PC and I have my nice like gaming mouse and everything. So I'm like, and since I own it on Xbox, I also own it on the Xbox app on PC. I think it's also in Game Pass, but whatever. Um, so I installed it on my PC. So I have it ready to go on everything in my house that can play the game. Uh, I have it on three systems. Um, not that I bought, I only bought it once, but I have it on three systems. So I will play it definitely before Village comes out. I'm very excited. Sounds like that's a game you and I are going to probably cover when it comes out. Yeah, yeah. And again, like Resident Evil 7 is not particularly long, so you can you can get through it easily in a couple of days. And then, yeah, and then I have bought the DLC because there's like four pieces of DLC. One of them is free. That is like an expansion of stuff that happens at the end. There's basically a character that's kind of left hanging at the end of Resident Evil 7, and from what I understand, they released a free piece of DLC that kind of deals with that character. Um, and then there's three other DLCs that are paid, and right now they're like 60% off or something on, on PSN, so I bought that. Because it seems like my impression is from looking around online that like people like the DLC, not necessarily love it, but it seems like they like it enough to, if you really enjoyed 7, it's worth playing the, the DLC as well. So I'll probably play that. I'll play those tonight and probably tomorrow, because uh, it doesn't seem like they're super, super long. Um, but yeah, no, Resident Evil 7 is a great game. People should play it if you like that kind of thing. It does, like, and I'm glad I played it because, um, one thing that was fun about the game was, you know, I know that in Resident Evil 8 is a continuation of the story, right? So it's the same main character, Ethan Winters. And I remember when I saw the trailer for Resident Evil 8, I was like, oh, do they really need to, like, he always seemed like kind of a boring nothing dude because he's just this first-person shooter protagonist character who he talks but kind of barely... But actually playing Resident Evil 7, there's something about the arc of this character who is not even like rookie cop Leon S. Kennedy. He's far from like Star's special agent Chris Redfield. He's just a random dude who gets an email from his wife who's been missing that's like, come here, like, come help me. I'm in this house. And he's like, well, this is crazy. My wife's been missing for three years. Let me go to the Bayou of Louisiana and go figure out what's going on here. <laughs> just wanders into this house carrying literally nothing. And then by the end of it, you are, like, murdering giant Resident Evil monsters with a fucking, like, flamethrower and shit. And there's something about the arc of that character, even though it's not particularly characterized in the game, that in my head, that that is such a compelling, like, he leaves that game the fucking Terminator. Because the, by the time you're, like, halfway through the game, you're so powerful that when the different enemy characters, like the members of the Baker family, that kind of is how the game's set up, is each section is kind of based around one of the members of this family that have been infected by this mysterious virus that make them like crazy resident evil monster people um by the time you're like finishing up the mother section which is kind of the second major section of the game you feel so like powerful because you've overcome so much that there's a part of me that I'm like, you fuckers, like, you're the prey. Like, you're the people who should be scared of fucking me. Because I'm just, like, <laughs> slow stomping around this house like Jason fucking Voorhees. Because the movement speed is fairly slow in the game to, like, make it so that it's hard for you to do dodge enemy attacks and kind of depower you. But, like, if you, again, if you hoard your resources effectively, you just become so deadly in that game. And it's incredibly satisfying. So I'm very excited to play the continuing adventures of Ethan Winter, the fucking most blasé world's greatest monster hunter ever. Like, it's so funny to me, this dude who has nothing to him at all. And yet he comes out of that game over the course of one night, having destroyed, like, countless, like, inhuman creatures from beyond the void, basically. That actually makes me even more excited to play the game because that is actually a really cool idea for a Resident Evil character because, uh, as you say, other than Ethan now, 
everyone's been part of the family. Like the closest outside of that would be like Claire in Resident Evil 2. Kind of just she's looking for her brother. But her brother is Chris Redfield, who's the main character of one. Yeah. So like everybody. And then in five and six, it's all the like people inside the family. Um, so I like that it's just a guy who like stumbles into Resident Evil. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very fun. It's I like the way that they sort of. It's not super deep in the Resident Evil lore. So also if people haven't played previous Resident Evil games, you can play seven just fine. Um, they're like little nods and references. And it feels like it probably exists in a slightly separate continuity. Um, I mean, I haven't played six, so I don't know exactly where that game goes, but it's hard for me to believe that some of the stuff I know from those games, like, has actually happened in the history of this world, and, like, you'd be able to just be a normal person in the world of Resident Evil. Um, but it definitely exists in a world where, like, there are references to, like, the Raccoon City incident and things like that. So, um, it clearly is, like, playing with some of that lore, but it's light enough that if you haven't, if you're not into the franchise, you can still play it and, and, and get a lot out of it as well. Awesome. Yeah, and it looks like Village comes out May 7th, so we yeah. are... Oh, we're coming right up on it. Mm -hmm. God damn it. Too many games. Have you gotten uh, Nier yet? Nier Replicant? No, because I finished playing Resident Evil 7 last night, so I'm, I'll probably start playing... I mean, I'm still playing through Yakuza 7 as well, because I've been like juggling right. a bunch of games, because um, I'm playing Genshin, I'm playing Yakuza 7, and then I made some time this week to play Resident Evil 7, so we'll see when I'll okay. have time to, to play some of that stuff. Yeah, I haven't tried near yet. My brother got it on Steam, and I, I we Steam share our libraries, so I put it on my PC just to try it. And if I like it, I might get it on PS Five. Um, but I have not given that game a try yet. Um, I've been playing. So what have I been playing? I uh, beat Ratchet and Clank, and then I immediately started Ratchet and Clank again because it has a new game plus, and it's very fun. And the new game plus, I just you know you just skip through all the cutscenes and stuff, and then that game is like very short because you mm -hmm. know what you're doing. Um, but it's fun. I'm going for the Platinum. I'm pretty close to being able to do that. Um, but that game is... Ratchet, you know, it's it's Ratchet and Clank. It's, it's, if you've seen one of those games before, you kind of know what to expect. It is this mix of, like, platformer and... But very, very light platformer. Uh, and then goofy third-person shooter. And the goofy third-person shooter part of it is amazingly fun. It's beautiful. It's got cool environments. You know, I don't think it's, like, the greatest game ever, but it's a very, very solid, you know like starting point if you have not played one of those games before and it makes me excited for Rift Apart which is the next one coming out on PS5 it also just underlines for me though what a fucking bummer it is that Sony doesn't give half a shit about their legacy and backwards compatibility and stuff mm -hmm. because you know they have this Ratchet and Clank game that was a reboot that's been out for five years now and there's no other Ratchet and Clank games to play on PS4 or PS5 Right, yeah. What are we talking about? Like, there's like a million of these that they could get from the PS2 and the PS3. PS3, I know, is a little harder. But, like, why don't you have the PS2 sequels? I would totally, after I was playing these, I would have gone and paid, like, 5 to $10 to try out some of those other ones that if they were right there. It's just such a weird strategy. Like, if you're going to have some of these series as an ongoing thing and just ignore that they have this back catalog, that's very odd to me. Um, yeah, it really feels like there should have been like the what like Bluepoint did with Uncharted and the Nathan Drake collection, like at bare minimum, a picking a bunch of those games and just giving them a light pass and updating them for like yeah. a you can like because there's so many of them you could do that and easily charge sixty bucks and justify it with like five fucking games in there. Right, and there's like I was looking at it. There's different continuities, like you or not continuities, but little mini series. So right. like. There's like the original trilogy, there's the future trilogy, which was the PS3 games. There's there's a lot you could do, and, and it's too bad that it's just like, 
five years and it's this game that like they keep like reselling but not the other ones Mm -hmm. but i am excited for rift apart it is very cool and then i have continued my brother and i uh every night are playing through more of uh halo that's kind of why i probably haven't played resident evil 7 yet is i've been playing halo every night with my brother we've been going through the whole series on the master chief collection on pc uh we beat odst the other day because we're going through chronologically as they're like listed so halo reach one, two, ODST, and then now we are on three. We just got through uh, Savo Highway and the one after that last night. The Savo Highway about psh, east of Voy. That's the line I think of every mm-hmm. time with that level. Anyway, uh, Halo is good. I'm still having fun playing that mouse and keyboard as a revelation. And genuinely, those games are so much easier mm-hmm. <laughs> on PC. It's, it's very funny. Like ODST and three are already the easiest on Legendary. Like Legendary is not as hard on those ones. But um, we have played through those, I think, on Legendary before, and doing it this time is just like, it's it's still hard. It's not an easy game, but it's amazing like how much just being able to just like point at the grunt and shoot it in the head makes it easier. Um, it's very cool. But I am I am really happy to be playing those games on PC. It is such a fun way to re-experience them. Uh, and Halo Three, man, this is a, this is a really good fucking game. Turns out, yes, Halo Three is a good fucking video game. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Halo's fun. That's what I've been doing. Uh, I also just wanted to give a shout out to a TV show that ended a season this week. The Apple TV Plus show for all mankind. You have probably, if you follow me on Twitter, seen me tweeting about it incessantly. This show just finished its second season the other night on Apple TV Plus, And it is just one of the best American TV shows I've seen in years that's not called Better Call Saul. Um, it is fantastic. It is... For those who don't know, it is an alternate history story of the space program. So it's like a NASA story. You know, think Apollo 13 or First Man or the Wright stuff or something like that. But it starts from the premise of what if the Russians got to the moon first. And so history diverges at the point where uh, the Russians beat us to the moon. And then from that point on, it's an alternate history narrative. Um, and the first season actually has a bunch of characters who are actual NASA people, but they've, they're obviously doing new things because of the alternate history. Um, by season two, that's kind of different. Um, but that's the premise of the show. The first season is really, really good. It's got a lot of great stuff. I think if you're going into it for like crazy alternate history stuff, that first season starts very modest. Like it, it starts slow in terms of how history would diverge because that's how history works um but it's a really interesting story that first season deals with like like a full decade of story dealing with like um because of that like america being sort of humbled by this has to actually work harder on the space program the space race becomes an ongoing thing nasa winds up bringing women into the fold as astronauts earlier than they do in real life um, there's all these different things that happen. We wind up doing a base on the moon, and we're starting to have like bait scientific bases up on the moon. And then season two takes place in the 1980s and is uh, unfucking believable. Season two of For All Mankind is one of the best seasons of TV of American TV I have ever seen. It is up there with like my favorites, like The Wire season four, Twin Peaks: The Return, Better Breaking Bad season three, Mad Men season. Pick a Mad Men season four, I guess I'll go with. They're all good. Um, but, like, it is a it is such a cool story. Because season two actually takes place in a much more compressed time frame. And is basically about the birth of armed conflict on the moon. Um, to the point where it feels like it could be a low-key Gundam prequel. About, like, armed combat in space. And it's like, 
it is not a big leap to see them inventing mobile suits in this universe at this point. That is my own nerdy brain. The show never gestures in that mm. direction. Um, but it is phenomenal. And the season finale is one of the best hours of TV I've ever seen. It is... Like, this show is so unusually good at the basics of serialized storytelling where, you know, you and I have both expressed this opinion, Sean. Most American TV shows do not need to run a full hour. Mm -hmm. It is a waste of time. Anime has it right doing 25 minutes. Um, but I think there are rare shows that are the exception. I think For All Mankind is one of them. It has that same quality as The Wire, if you've seen The Wire, of... It is dense and novelistic in how many threads it puts out and then in the finale ties them together and the payoff is just so immense. Um, it, it really is incredible and I'm actually really impressed with Apple TV Plus because between that and Ted Lasso, which is their sort of big marquee comedy, those are two of my favorite shows of the entire streaming age. They're certainly the best two shows I've seen a streaming service launch with. Um, and I still am, I still have a free trial for Apple TV Plus because if you bought like an Apple device in the last couple of years, they just gave it to you for like a year and a half. Um, and I think the, the the free trials are finally running out this summer, but I'll probably pay for it because the, they actually have really, really good stuff on that service. Um, but for all mankind, uh, Apple TV Plus, if you have to if you're not getting a free trial, I think it's five bucks a month. Please just spend the $5 and watch For All Mankind. It is such a good show. It is such a good show. I will go door-to-door -door evangelizing for this show. I love it so much. Even if you, like, you know, I am a I am big into these, like, space race stories kind of thing. I really love these kind of movies and TV shows. I think even if you aren't inherently, I think you would like this show. It's just that good. Awesome. Yeah. I think I also have somewhere a code for Apple TV Plus something or other. Um, because you are yeah. definitely inundated with free codes to random streaming services at an alarming rate these days because yes. everything in their mother has their own streaming service. So maybe I should figure out where I have that code somewhere and check that out. You know, one thing I actually like about Apple TV+, Plus, they're playing a very different game than everyone else. They are not trying to do the catalog thing of like mm -hmm. how many millions of hours can we get on this. It's much more like HBO pre-HBO Max where it is just a service of new original stuff and they program a couple of shows at a time and it's not a million things and there's kind of a focus on quality and I miss that <laughs> yeah I think we're like very I mean we're almost basically here where it feels like TV has just turned into that where instead of it being you get a cable package with these different services and like HBO and stuff like that instead it is you subscribe to these streaming services that are just putting out original content. Because at a certain point, streaming has been around long enough as the primary form of delivery for most people's TV content that, like, there isn't any more legacy stuff for people to have. It's been divvied up most places uh -huh. at this point. So it's like now it is just entirely about what is the, what are the ongoing new shows that people have that then, you know, if they build up a library of here's five seasons of The Mandalorian or whatever, like whatever... Um, here's three or four seasons of For All Mankind that then people will be attracted to go in for both the new shows they have and then the legacy shows you didn't see when they launched or whatever. Like, we're very much just, like, at that place with streaming at this point. We are, but, like, it's, it's, it's such an arms race with some of these big ones like Disney, Netflix, and HBO Max, and Peacock, and Paramount fucking Plus, who gives a shit, that are all fighting over, like, how big a catalog can we get? Mm -hmm. And... I'm missing the, like, curated network approach where, like, what are your actual shows you're focusing on, like, this season? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, 
you don't get that with most of these. Um, but you are getting that with like uh, an Apple TV Plus, and I actually think that's a good space to be working in because it's different. Um, but anyway, yeah, streaming, there's lots of stuff. Uh, Sean, do you want to do a couple pieces of news real quick? Before I go into that, there's one other thing I want to talk about, Jonathan, that I, I, I did this week. Uh, so I also... So I've been doing uh, The Great Gatsby with my 10 Honors group. Oh, boy. Yeah. I think so I know where you're going. You know what I'm about to say. Uh, and we had, two weeks ago now, was the SAT. So it was like a really weird scheduled week. And like class schedules were slightly different like times and stuff. Um, and like most of the week was just SAT. And it was like, well, I, there's not really enough time. And it's, there's no real point when they're stressed out about SAT stuff to spend a lot of time like covering new material well, I'm doing Great Gatsby, and there are um, three existing. There have been four, but the original version that's a silent film doesn't exist anymore. But there are three extant versions of The Great Gatsby. Let's just do, like, a movie day. We'll pick a section of the movie to watch and then talk about what they do to adapt it. And I was looking at them, and I've never, I've not watched the 1940s one all the way through, but it didn't really jump out at me as certainly something that they would like, um, and I wasn't way into it. And then the 1970s one with Robert Redford is okay but not great even for me um and so for a bunch of teenagers it's gonna it would be just murder to try to put them through any section of that movie that's extended because the most i get out of that movie is being like hey there's sam waterston he's in law and order i like him but the, that movie is a pretty <laughs> dull adaptation of the book and then there's the 2013 baz lerman adaptation uh with leonardo dicaprio baz lerman of course um director of Romeo plus Juliet, the bane of all ninth grade English teachers, because it is a terrible fucking version of that story. Um, Romeo plus Juliet is the Leonardo DiCaprio read Romeo D Juliet adaptation that updates it to modern times, which is fine. M lots of Shakespeare stuff updates the setting to different places. Um, what's not fine is Baz Luhrmann's approach as a director is, let's say, not well suited to Shakespeare. Um, because his approach is to crank the dial up to 11 and just keep it there and then maybe try to force it to 12 even at some moments. Um, he's a very in-your-face, very loud, um, very direct, almost kind of cartoonish director. Then he made Moulin Rouge, which is not to my taste, but there are, there are lots of people that like that movie a lot, and I think I get it, because for that movie and the musical-type approach, it feels to me that like there's his style is way more suited than for fucking Shakespeare. Yes, that is true. And then he did, uh, I think he made another movie in there somewhere, but then he did Great Gatsby in 2013, um, all bringing back his you know, long-standing partnership with Le uh, Leonardo DiCaprio to, to play the lead in his uh, adaptations of classics from history. Um, and it was interesting, because I, so I watched, to prepare for the class, I was like, well, we're, obviously we wouldn't watch the whole movie, because it was gauged for like a 50-minute class. So I was like, I'll just like start watching the beginning and figure out if there's enough of this I want to watch. Because I hadn't seen it before. And I watched like the first 30 minutes, which is more or less the first three chapters of Great Gatsby, that takes you up to the end of Gatsby's first party he throws that Nick, the narrator, goes to. And that section is actually pretty good. And I was like, you know what? This is working. And it was like, certainly if there are other high school teachers, English teachers listening to this, the first 30 minutes of that movie, I would highly recommend showing it. Because I think it creates interesting conversations about some of the character interpretations in terms of the actors and like what they do. And then the big thing that's like the big flashy thing that he chooses to do um, as a director is mix period appropriate 1920s like big band jazz music with what was at the time in 2013 like modern recent pop hits. And that effect I think is quite effective, um, particularly for like a younger audience that it, it makes the 
glam and the excess of the parties of the Roaring Twenties like way more accessible. Um, and honestly, I think is a way better depiction of that period than the other film adaptations that are like trying to pretend that there was some kind of class, like proper, like we're proper people having parties because it's old. No, these people were getting drunk off their ass. They would have been doing drugs. Like they would have, you know, they would have been having sex in the fucking broom closet in the same way that people do that at modern parties because humans are humans, right? And so if they're all getting drunk at this party, it's people getting drunk at a party, right? So I think that element, and there's a scene in, there's a section in chapter two where Nick looks out at his window um, and there's a pretty close adaptation of a section from the novel. And he's ruminating on like, the nature of all these people living in the city and him looking through these like brief golden glimpse into their lives. And that passage I think is actually pretty artfully adapted by Baz Luhrmann. And so I watched the first 30 minutes. And I was like, I showed it to my class. I was like, well, this is great. Um, but I didn't have time to watch the whole movie. And then the other day I sat down, I was like, well, let me watch the rest of it. Cause I did like those first 30 minutes and maybe there's another section I might want to show. And that was a mistake because the rest of the movie is not, particularly good and it becomes a thing where the problem with Baz Luhrmann as a director is that subtlety is not really a word in his vocabulary um and for f long stretches of the novel for F. Scott Fitzgerald the author he's not a super subtle author in a lot of places like there's a reason why we teach Great Gatsby and it's because when he wants you to pay attention to something and like what it means, he will just tell you that very blatantly. So when he says something like, we you know the green light as the symbol on the dock that like Gatsby's reaching out towards is a representation of the American dream. This is a thing you can tell because F. Scott Fitzgerald just says, and he was reaching out to the American dream, like a green light, the green light on the harbor across the bay or whatever, right? When you think about the eyes on the billboard of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, representing the eyes of God. That's a thing you know because he has a character multiple times just point to the billboard and say they are the eyes of God. Um, so Fitzgerald oftentimes not engaging in subtlety. And so where Fitzgerald isn't subtle, Lerman by default is not subtle. And so it kind of works. The problem is though that a lot of the character dynamics, particularly when you get to the end of the story, are very subtle. And it is like the dynamic of like, who is Gatsby, this person like really? There's a lot of, like, I think, care and thought that goes into the, like, interiority of the principal characters. And that is something that is so lost in Lerman's adaptation, where he cannot find ways to trust his actors enough to just deliver the scenes. That he has to, like, make characters repeatedly shout out their motivations and the themes of the scene. So, like, he will just have the character Tom Buchanan uh, just flat out say over and over and over again like we are from a different world we are a higher class than this Gatsby fellow um like we were born different than you were so no matter what you do Gatsby you will never be able to be in our class all things that are true of the novel but it reads very differently and very stupidly when you just have characters say it again and it's not even just once he gives those characters like five or six lines that don't exist in the book that just repeatedly state whatever is happening in the scene um and then usually having them shout them at the like at the top of their voice um, in a way that like when you read the novel feels like this is supposed to be a much more subdued moment for these characters where you are meant to read between the lines of what they're saying instead of just having them shout whatever the character motivation uh, is. Uh, and it is his adaptation of the chapter seven, which is the climactic chapter in the book where all the characters like secrets come out. And then after the, Oh my the, God, it's so bad. It's so yeah, bad. It's yeah. a legendarily bad scene. Yeah. It's horribly done. Um, it's like, and it's the best chapter in the book. It's the chapter that like makes the book, the book. It's that in the last chapter, chapter nine. It's a horrible, like that shit is so bad. 
And then he commits to me what is a cardinal offense, which is at the very end, um, spoilers for The Great Gatsby, Gatsby dies at the end, right? And so the last chapter is about his funeral, and nobody goes to his funeral except for Nick, the narrator who, who arranges the funeral, uh, Owl Eyes, who is a character that very blatantly is a stand-in for God, because he almost tells you that. Um, and then, critically, and this is something that Lerman cuts out to, I think, like, tragic effect, Gatsby's father shows up. He's like father, the father of James Gats, the person who Gatsby was before he changed his identity and sort of created this sort of fake version of himself to pursue, pursue wealth and power outside of his means. Um, he shows up from out of the Midwest and starts talking about how Gatsby, a couple of years prior to when the novel is set, after Gatsby got his wealth, went back home and he like took care of his parents and he bought them the house that they live in and all this stuff. And it's like, that is such a key piece of the puzzle of who Gatsby is as a character, which is literally what the entire book is about. Again, Scott Fitzgerald is not subtle. If he wants you to pay attention to a character that like, this is the key character of the book, he will just name the fucking book after them, like The Great Gatsby. Um, so you're supposed to really be like kind of dissecting who this character is and cutting out that thing with the father to me, like almost completely ruins the whole point of the book because it makes Gatsby such a like inaccessible character and like makes the tragedy basically impotent at the end of the movie that he has died because you don't get to see like that there was this like really good person who was under there the whole time. He just had starved them in his wealth, in his, uh, like, insane, desperate need for wealth and affection from Daisy. Uh, and so th the long and short of it is, the first 30 minutes, pretty fucking good. It goes downhill from there, and it's baffling to me because Great Gatsby has got to be the easiest novel adaptation of any classic novel because it is perfectly structured for a three-act film that would run about two to two and a half hours, and you would have to cut basically nothing because it's a nine-chapter book that is about 120 pages long. Uh, it is like such a clear novelistic structure or a film cinematic structure. I don't know why you would honestly change anything because it's almost exactly what a movie of it would be. It is, but like, I actually think, and this was my, I was looking up my review of this movie and, and refreshing my thoughts on it. It's what's so weird and impotent about that movie though, is it's a pretty straight by the book adaptation. Yeah. And it doesn't really make, like, the biggest firm adaptational choice it makes is how to depict the parties, and it does that very well. And then other than that, it's just Boz Lerman doing The Great Gatsby, and it doesn't work because he's not suited for it. And, like, I don't know if it's inherently he couldn't do it, but you would have to actually, like, think about it more as an adaptational exercise, and he doesn't. Um, and then, like, the acting is so all over the place in that movie. It, yeah. it inexplicably has both Joel Edgerton and Jason Clark, who should never be in the same place because they look like the same person, and Jason Clark is basically the poor man's Joel Edgerton. They're both very bad in the movie. Um, I like It introduced us to Elizabeth Debicki. She plays Jordan, and she's really good, uh, and I like her. But other than that, uh, yeah, that movie was a, a waste of everything. And, yeah, it is very weird that, that no one's done a good Great Gatsby movie. I think it is this weird thing where its legacy looms so large, people just trip over themselves doing it, you yeah. know? I hope that um, now that the book is in the public domain, which happened late last year, which is fantastic, because now I don't even have to, like, pretend to care that I just get pirated copies online for the digital versions to give my students, because, fuck, I'm not going to, like, have the department pay 100 bucks or whatever for a bunch of digital ebooks. Fuck that shit. I'm just going to get a PDF online. There's about a million of them. Now you can just do that for free and not even give a shit. Uh, hopefully that means that maybe, like, more, like, art house type directors would be able to make a smaller, lower budget. I mean, 
a problem is like nobody you shouldn't make a movie like i'm looking at the wikipedia page and it says the budget was between 105 to 190 million dollars you shouldn't make an adaptation <laughs> of Ga- great gatsby for that much money because like that's fucking absurd um like i get that it's set in the 20s so there's like a little bit of expense that that's going to incur because you need to like you know get the the set and setting and all that well and like get some vintage cars and shit like that so it's like not going to be the cheapest possible movie to make but like it should not be a hundred million plus dollars to make an adaptation of the great gatsby um there's like there's like seven characters in the whole fucking book yeah it's weird it's i actually didn't know it was in the public domain now because that book has always been weirdly expensive compared to other books you have Mm -hmm. to get for school uh so that is nice yeah but that's my that's my journey with watching uh the great gatsby and you know apparently uh baz lerman's going making an elvis movie i didn't know this but i'm looking at his wikipedia page and next next year he slotted it for a movie called elvis which will be the first movie he's made since the great gatsby so who's playing elvis does it say Uh, i don't know if it's uh let's see uh austin butler as Elvis Presley, I don't know who that is. Nope. Fuck that. That he's a Disney Channel boy. Okay. Um, yeah. Tom was, Hanks is uh, in it apparently as Elvis's father. Or is that that Elvis makes father? no sense? That? No, he's no, Elvis's makes... manager. Never mind. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, um, you want to do just one piece of news here, Sean? Since we're running a little long. Yeah. What's going on in the news, Jonathan? This isn't really news, it's just a thing, but I wanted to talk about the trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, because I will just say, between WandaVision having a really bad finale and kind of coming ending on a down note, and then Falcon and the Winter Soldier just being a bad show, I've been pretty down on Marvel lately, uh, and it's just been forever since we've had one of these, and then we got the trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings, and I went, God damn it, you've got me, you crazy motherfuckers, this movie looks awesome. Yeah, no, it looks fantastic. I mean, it it looks like... Because I think one of the reasons why I haven't been, like, super compelled to go watch the Disney Plus shows is, like, some of the the setup I'm, like, conceptually interested in. But, like, if I'm being honest, like, you know, Wanda in the movies, at least, and then Falcon and Winter Soldier, like, I like those characters okay, but not enough to draw me to, like, go see their thing um, automatically or, like, to, like, go rush to watch it immediately. Um, because for me, like, I think one of the things I, I most enjoy about the Marvel stuff is when they do new characters, because then you get the excitement of seeing what is their interpretation of this character? Who are they going to cast for it? How is the character, the actor going to play it? Cause they've nailed their main characters every single time so well, um, that, that, yeah, there was something about this that felt like, oh, this is like why I've really enjoyed the MCU is because here's this character that I just used to read comics of when I was 10 years old because Shang-Chi is badass because he's basically just what if we made Bruce Lee a superhero. Um, And I say superhero lightly because he doesn't really have much in the way of superpowers other than that he's just like the world's best martial artist. Um, So he just kicks ass super hard. That's his superpower. Bruce Lee was already a superhero. I don't know if that's a what if. (laughs) Yes, but and it's not even like he's like so rich. He's Batman's superpowers. It's like, no, he just kicks that much ass. Um, and so I always really liked Shang-Chi. And so, yeah, just seeing this and seeing this, um, it's a great trailer. I think it's just a great pitch for the movie that shows they're, like, taking the character of the material very seriously. Um, it's a fucking great cast. Um, it's a bunch of great people behind the scenes as well. Like, a bunch of the stunt choreographers and stuff like that are people who've worked with Jackie Chan before. Um, uh, I really like, like that director. It's a, yeah, it's a guy named Destin Daniel Cretton who did a movie called Short Term 12 that everyone should see. Uh, it is the movie Brie Larson should have won her Oscar for. Uh, she won it for Room, which is she's also very good in, but Short Term 12 is incredible. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, 
director's good the stunt people and like the fight choreographers and stuff behind the scenes if you follow that stuff are all really good and have worked on great movies um and done great work and so it feels like they're gonna nail it on all ends with this um and because it's not just have a cool character in like a good superhero movie but also have cool martial arts scenes and there's that like beat at near the end of the trailer where he does like the jumping split kicks um and does like kind of bruce lee like what's up thing and yeah. it's fucking that's like yes i'm totally i'm 100 percent here for this movie absolutely uh also sean they got tony leung yeah holy fuck i still i have tried to express this on twitter i don't think americans get what a big deal this is by and large that is the most famous person in a marvel movie mm -hmm. just inarguably he is now the most famous person in a Marvel movie and also probably the best actor to ever appear in a Marvel movie. Tony Leung, who, like, key figure of the entire Hong Kong New Wave, key figure in Taiwanese cinema with his stuff with, like, Hu Xiaoshen, uh, key, or Cai Ming, is he, I think it's Hu Xiaoshen, um, key figure now in mainland Chinese cinema. He's worked with John Woo. He's worked with Wan Kar Wai. Like, name a big Chinese director of, like, the last 30 years. He's done a big movie with them. He is one of the best actors on the planet, and he's playing the villain. And my favorite thing about the trailer was realizing, okay, what I was worried is that they were going to do the thing that, like, Pirates of the Caribbean 3 did with Chow Yun-Fat, where they advertised him, and then he's in one scene. Um, it looks like he's the actual villain of the movie. Yeah. He narrates the trailer, all of that. And I'm like, yeah, fuck to the hell to the yeah. This is actually the first Hollywood movie he's ever done. So wow. this is pretty crazy. I am very excited. <laughs> Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm really stoked for it. Um, yeah, like I said, it's just it's like it's what I like about the Marvel movies most is just getting here's like a cool character. Um, especially it's because we are so far into the at this point, like these are characters that if you t travel back in time and told ten year old me that that Shang Chi comic I was reading that like they would make a fucking big budget like really push it super hard movie. Um. A blockbuster film based on this character that's going to make like a billion fucking dollars or some shit who knows like um it's going to make marvel money um i would have never believed you right because i'm like before they get to shang chi they'd have to make like they'd make a fucking ant-man movie or some shit it's like well they've already made two <laughs> ant-man movies yes. right and he's been in like <laughs> two or three avengers movies also so you know they 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 were like so far into the like we're getting like so many like the cooler characters on the edge of marvel that you would never normally get an adaptation of. And you're also not just getting an adaptation of, you're getting like a, we're putting our full like oomph into it. It's not, you know, like the Steel movie starring Shaquille O'Neal in the 90s or some shit of like, let's take some C-list superhero that nobody's heard of, have a basketball star play them and like kind of shit out this movie. It's like, no, this is, we are taking a small property and putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind it. Um, and that's like very exciting to to see 10 year old me who still lives somewhere in my blackened heart because <laughs> we're getting a lot of this we're getting uh shang chi we're getting she hulk we're getting mm -hmm. um miss marvel what else are they i, I wonder if i'm forgetting anyone who we're getting like new heroes yeah but that's all really we're cool definitely i don't remember if it's going to be a movie or if it was a disney plus thing but they're doing a moon knight thing somewhere in there that's a that's a disney most of these are going to be on disney plus which i'm a little worried about um because I will say, like, WandaVision uses the TV format. Falcon and the Winter Soldier, part of what is bad about it is it is just Captain America 4, but six hours instead of two. It mm -hmm. is 100% the six-hour movie bullshit. Um, but yeah, we're getting The Eternals. That's a new one. 
Um, they're going to do Blade and Fantastic Four at some point. Not new to movies, but new to the MCU. Um, yeah, Moon Knight, the new Hawkeye, played by Haley Steinfeld. Um, Ironheart. Um, yeah, a lot of these coming up. That is that is exciting. I'm glad that like this next phase of Marvel is full of new heroes. That's yes. good. Yeah. All right. Um, because despite what that stupid small dick billboard said, we do not need Tony Stark back in the MCU. No. Yes. Yeah. All right. Do you want to talk about a really great movie, Sean? Yes, Jonathan. Let's talk about uh, what one of the best, certainly one of the best movies I've seen in a movie theater in over a year, but one of the best movies <laughs> I've seen in a movie theater in like 10 years. Um, a movie that I would argue is better than any Marvel movie, I would say, pretty definitively for me at least. Uh, yeah. I, I the, like I Marvel mean, movies only, quite a bit, but yeah. Uh, the only competition would be Black Panther. Yes. Um, this is probably better than that. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. We are talking about Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train. Um, Please, Jonathan. Which... Demon, Demon Slayer colon Kimetsu no Yaiba, the movie colon Mugen Train. Let's get the proper title in there. Yes. And by the way, Sean. Yeah. Did you see how much money this made this weekend? No, I did not. Like in America? In America, it made $20 million. In like two days? In, th- in three oh, days. Oh, yeah, three days. With in three days. Yeah. It made, yeah. It made, um, no, this is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Uh, the Sunday Sundays are always estimates, but um, if I remember correctly, Dragon Ball Super Broly was the last big one that like the thing that made it big, and I think that was nine million for the weekend. Oh my god! Um, it this did yeah yeah it did nine million for its opening. Uh, this did over double what Dragon Ball Super Broly, a Dragon Ball movie, made the title made by a fucking algorithm to get Americans <laughs> into the theater. Demon Slayer, the movie, Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, the movie, colon, Mugen Train, 19.5 million in American theaters. This is a wide release. Dragon Ball Super was slightly more limited, but still, like, and in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of these theaters are reopening for the first time. This is a, that's a full-blown phenomenon for an anime movie, for a foreign movie, like, uh, unbelievable. Uh, And it is also a great film. So to back up, um, obviously this is the sequel to the TV show. This is just the next part of the story. Um, and we talked about the TV show last week. We both love it. It's great. Um, but yeah, the the movie, do you want to give your quick spoiler-free thoughts and then we'll tell people when we'll turn the spoiler tap on? Yeah, yeah. And I guess like, yeah, just up front for people listening to the podcast, if you are interested in seeing the movie, like you do definitely need to watch the first season, 26 episodes, uh, to... I mean, I think you would be able to enjoy the movie just, like, purely on its own merits because it is just so good. But it definitely is not going to introduce you to the characters or anything like that. So people should watch that first season, which is good because it's, like, you, you're, it's not like a chore of, oh, I have to watch this. It's, hey, go watch, like, one of the best seasons of anime in years before you watch one of the best animated films in years. Um, but people should know that going in, that this is not a spinoff or something. It is, you should watch season one before you watch this. Uh, and yeah, this is, I was completely floored by how good this movie is. And I went in with very high expectations because I, you know, I consume quite a bit of Japanese media. Um, I watch like Japanese streamers and stuff like that. Um, and like listen to like radio shows, which are basically just podcasts, but they still just call them radio shows. Um, and so like anyone who's been listening to any of that kind of like Japanese media for the past year or so now, um, or like past six months, knows that like the gravitational pull of this movie is like inescapable in japan everywhere everybody everywhere in every sphere of japanese media i've touched like talks about this movie in some way and so last week on the podcast i said like i don't think that this movie is just 
the biggest movie in Japan because everyone's so in love with Kimetsu no Yaiba. That's one part of it. But I also, like, I have a pretty good sense I think this movie is fucking great, too. And so I went in with really high expectations about this movie. And I also went in with, like, pretty strong suspicions about, like, what happens at the end um, that were, like, proved correctly. Uh, and so even, like, knowing all that and having high expectations, my expectations were still blown out of the water. Like, it was still a lot better than I expected. Like, I think it is an incredible film on basically every single level from animation. The performances are just, like, incredible. Like, I don't know how Hana Inetsuki does even better as Tanjiro in this movie than he did in the TV yep. show, because it's already, like, among the best, like, lead performances in a show like this I've ever seen, and he still, like, kills it in this movie so hard um the direction but like the storytelling and the care and thought that went into what is like the main theme that we're communicating through this the story of this movie how do we do that in a way that's compelling and interesting and surprising and exciting because it is really there's a big pivot that happens basically at the third act of the movie in a the it, both in terms of a plot sense but in a thematic sense where you think that you're on a fairly kind of straightforward thematic direction with what is a fairly sort of tried-and-true dream-based enemy story theme stuff that we'll talk about when we talk about the movie. And then it pivots in the third act to make that theme much more, like, personal and deep and, like, like very human. Like, deep on this, like, human level that it hits you, like, kind of at your core. And it's saying something very fundamental about life and mortality and what it means to be a person in a way that's not unique for the genre. It's a very common kind of theme for the genre, but much like the spider arc at the end of the first season of Kimetsu no Yaiba, which takes the themes around family that are common for shonen stuff, but does it in such a spectacular way that it makes you really like think about and care about and feel what those themes mean. I think this does the exact same thing uh, around like themes about mortality and what it means to struggle and to be a human and to live um, like a very common thematic work for this kind of genre that I don't think I've ever seen done as exceptionally well as this movie does it. Uh, and yeah, I was like basically bawling in the movie theater at the end of this movie because it is it's so touching and so powerful. Um, yeah. Well, let me tell you my thoughts on it. I went to see the movie. I walked out of the theater. I bought another ticket for an hour later. I went and got a sandwich and then I went back and watched the movie a second time. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't like it. I, I just don't <laughs> think it worked. I think the animation is really subpar. No, um, this movie's great. There were there, there are compounding circumstances to why I saw it twice. So let me tell the I saw the movie twice story. Uh, the number one is it's a really good movie and I wanted to watch it again before yeah. doing the podcast. The number two was I did not sleep basically the night before. I had really a lot of trouble getting to sleep for some reason. I think I was excited to be able to go to a movie again. Uh, and I nodded off a little bit in the movie the first time. Not out of anything wrong with the movie. It was purely like, I was like unusually groggy. I did not feel, like when I got home, I felt bad. Like I think I was just in a weird place, feeling weird. Um, so I also like, I just missed a couple of moments in one of the big fights in the middle of the movie and I was kicking myself. And uh, so I decided I needed to see it again, fully, fully aware and I was, and it was great. Uh, also like the presentation in the first screening was not perfect and it was not perfect in the second screening either because american movie theaters ha 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 um but um it was better so yeah i wound up seeing it twice also i was just so happy to be in a movie theater again i was just Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna make a day out of this i cleared my whole day i was in another town i just decided to do it so yeah so i watched the movie twice even better the second honestly like it was actually i was really happy i went to see it a second time because just because i actually knew nothing i was actually very surprised by the last half of this movie sean because i 
did not expect the things to happen to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like watching it, knowing where it was going and just watching it in a very analytical mindset that second time, which slipped a couple of times when the animation goes crazy. And then I'm just, you know, jaw agape leaning forward in my seat. Um, this, I made the comparison on Twitter. Well, first I said, I think this is just flat out one of the best and most like teachably great pop blockbusters in recent memory. Uh, and I'm not using the term pop blockbuster to put it down. I think that's it's the kind of thing it is. Yes. Obviously, it's popular and it is very much a blockbuster. It's the highest grossing movie in its nation's history. Um, broke a 20 year old record, you know, um, and it's breaking records in the United States as well. So like it is a big pop blockbuster and it is teachably great. And the one that immediately comes to mind for recent teachably great pop blockbusters is Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. I don't think this movie is like quite on that level, but I do think it is similarly adept at using three act structure so fucking perfectly that it becomes a weapon against the audience. Like it will, it will extract those tears from you, whether you want to or not, because it is so good at the basics of structure and planting and payoff and all the things that go into building a good narrative. And that is so amazing for something that, you know, if this very easily could have been just the next six episodes of the TV show strung together, put into a movie theater, successful because Kimetsu is successful, and we would all still enjoy it, right? You know? But they made a movie. And that's what's so amazing. It's like, this is a capital M movie. This is a film. This is a... Yes, you have to know the previous steps of the story, but the story told here is its own two-hour story with its own big ideas and its own movements. And that, I think, is... That's the secret ingredient that has pushed this to a level of success that, you know, just is unprecedented. Um, It's because it's that good. And it really is that good. Yeah, because you only get to, like, the level of the box office has in Japan if people are going back and seeing it a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth time, you know? Like, you're going and you're seeing it with every one of your friends. Um, You're, like, evangelizing the movie. Because it is that thing where, while you should definitely watch the first season to get the full impact of what the movie is with the characters, like, I think that this would be, like, a classically good movie for the, like, my friend is way into this thing. I haven't actually watched it but they want to go see the movie. I'll just go try to tag along with them. Like, I think if you're in that mindset and don't care and know that you're going to miss some of the character interest stuff and don't care and just let the movie take you away, I think in that context, you would still love this movie um, because it's that. And it would then make you leave the movie theater and be like, I guess I got to go watch that fucking TV show now because holy shit, that was good. I agree. Like, if if, if you have a friend who, like, likes anime and they haven't seen Demon Slayer and you're going to see the movie and you wanted to invite them along, just tell them, like... They slay demons. Um, you know, Tanjiro, his 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 sister's a little demon girl and he keeps her in a box. Uh, you're good to go. Like, they're on a train because there's a demon on the train. And then actually the movie will fill in a lot for yeah. you from there, right? Um, and part of that is they chose to build this movie around the character of Rengoku. And that character is introduced mildly in the TV show, but this is his thing. Like... Yes. Um, and because of that, this movie has a spine to carry itself on that makes it this great standalone thing that will also mean everything going forward in the series is going to be better for this movie. Because this is also this weird novel concept, and I can't believe it's so novel for anime, but like, 
it's the movie is just the next stage of the story. It's not a side story. It's not a new thing. It's not filler. It's not something the author came in and wrote as like a fun side plot thing. It's just the next like two volumes of the manga as a movie. And then they're going to pick up from there. And I want more of that, please. That's really a good way to do this. Yeah. Cause my version, Jonathan of you going and turning around and just going right back into the theater is I went home and I just read this section in the manga. Cause I had caught up to that mm. um, anyways. And uh, like, that's, I think one of the things I'm most impressed by is like the canniness of this choice to do this as a movie. Um, because I think it's like, it's clearly a creative decision first because, so it was something that we know the movie was greenlit about halfway through the this first season airing because they saw, okay, this is really popular. This is popular enough that we should um, start, like we're going to obviously have to do more of this. Let's start thinking about what we're going to do. And so then if you read the next section of the manga, like what this adapts isn't even two volumes. It's one and a half volume. Like it is, right. it is purely a two volume story in the sense of, you know, it's very clear to me to see, like, what the first episode of the second season is going to be. Because the second half of... So it's volume 7, and then the first half of volume 8. The second half of volume 8 deals with, basically, the fallout of this movie and kind of characters recovering and stuff like that. Um, and that's not stuff that they do in the movie, because I think they pick the perfect spot to end it. Um, and they create a scene at the beginning of the movie to create, like, a circular element for it to have this clear endpoint. Um but they picked a very tight amount of manga to adapt into what is like roundly basically almost exactly a two hour long movie. Um, and it was smart because I think this material is way too heavy to be the like first half of the next season or like the first half of the first core of the next season. It would be because you'd have the climax of this movie and all the crazy shit that happens at the climax of this movie would happen at like episode four or five of the next season of anime. And that would be so inappropriate. It would be so hard to do that. Um, and so they saw that and I think they made the very smart choice of, well, we can't really cut the first season short. It would be it would ruin the first season to try to like just put a bunch of episodes in there to build it out to 26 so you'd have like the training arc at the end of season one be the end of or the beginning of season two like you'd have to kind of tank the second half of season one to do that so looking at that and saying well this is such a tight story let's just do it as a movie they do it better like this is i think the the first season of the tv show i think it's kind of trade-offs on whether on what is better in the manga versus what's better in the anime i think this is just a roundly better version of the story partially because the structure like enhances a lot of the thematic material the stuff in the manga is good but i think the movie like finds the heart of that story and is able to expose it better because it's a focused one singular thing rather than a bunch of chapters in a serialized story format um and it's just like, I think it's like the perfect creative choice for how to tackle this material. Because when you read the manga, you like see it's like, yes, this was so smart to not just try to stuff this into the next season, to do this as a movie. And then you open the next season with the fallout from the movie, which catches people up. And then you go on to the next story arc um, and move on from there. Uh, I think it's like just such a smart fucking choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So, um... Do you want to talk just a little bit about going to see this in a movie theater before we turn the spoiler tap on and people can leave if they haven't seen it yet? Sure, yeah. So I assume, like, Jonathan, your movie theater was the same thing where, you know, you order tickets online and then it's, like, basically all the seats around your seat are, like, blocked off because it's, like, we got to have, you know, the spacing mm -hmm. for COVID. So obviously with the caveat of that, of where, you know, you had basically every other seat open unless it was, like, family going and seeing and they would kind of sit together. Um, but... 
basically with the exception of that you know thing my movie theater was almost completely packed like it was basically every seat probably nearly every seat that could be filled was filled um so that kind of like blew me away because this is like you said y'all that means made 20 million dollars this is the third or fourth time i've done one of these like go see an anime movie that you think is going to be obscure like dragon ball super broly which is not super obscure but relatively obscure and then char's counterattack as the fucking fandango special event or whatever the fuck that thing was it's like you're not expecting a huge amount of people there are like five other people in the movie theater um whereas here is like oh no this is like what i would expect for any movie like near its release right like if this was a marvel movie i would expect it to have basically this number of people in the movie theater um and there's something very fun about that of just feeling like this is like feels mainstream because a lot of the people in the movie theater it was like families it was like two parents and like a teenage son um and something like that where it's like it, it feels like i don't know if this is true but it kind of felt like this is a show that like some like like family groups have watched almost like together um is what it felt like which was cool like it felt like a good sense of community that was enhanced by the i haven't been to movie theater in over a year like i've barely done any normal like in public type stuff for over a year that wasn't connected directly to my job um and being in a movie theater that had that sense of community then on top of it for this thing that i really love but feels relatively obscure because it's not marvel it's not star wars or whatever like that was something that like i think enhanced some of the feeling of the movie was this feeling of we're all here together because we all love this thing and you don't wander into kimetsu no demon slayer colon kimetsu no yaiba the movie colon mugen train that's something you have to go to see because you really want to see it um and that was something i really really loved about going and seeing it in a movie theater rather than like waiting a couple of months for it to be available digitally oh absolutely um, and, and, you know, you and I both saw this in English, the, the subtitled screenings yes. with Japanese, um, but they were also playing it dubbed. Uh, so I don't know how full the dub theaters were, but for mine, at least, yeah, I mean, I saw it twice. The, the, I saw it at 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. The 2 p.m. didn't have as many people, but it was also a slightly bigger auditorium. Um, but the 5 p.m. was sold out. Um, I had like at least all the seats they could sell, they sold. So obviously they're working at like half or less capacity in these theaters. Um, the way my, this, this chain, it's Marcus theaters here in Iowa. The way they do it is they, it's all sets of two. So it's like two on, two off and alternating between rows. Um, and so, and then if you buy just one seat yourself, they don't sell the one next to it. Um, so I was very far from anybody, you know, I felt fine having my mask off while eating popcorn and stuff like that, you know, also I'm vaccinated. Um, so like, um, but yeah, it was pretty full. Uh, I did dip into a dubbed screening for like two minutes just to look and I didn't see that many people in it. Um, and I, I have no data to know, like, I would love to see the breakdown on these numbers. Like this 20 million number is so fucking crazy to me. I really, I want to see like the analysis of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's 20 million in 1600 theaters. That is also that has to be the widest release for an anime movie since like Pokemon the first movie. I have to imagine. Um, I'd have to go look that up. But or maybe Ponyo. Ponyo got a pretty big release in 2008. It was like the one Disney kind of tried um, as a mainstream movie. But anyway, very big opening, and I would love to see kind of the breakdown on those numbers because those are game changing numbers mm -hmm. that's like uh, to be clear godzilla versus kong opened with 30 million i you know that's a lot of people going to see this movie in the the covid sphere 
But yeah, so it was crazy going to a movie again, though. Um, it was very nice to be in a theater again and then immediately remember, oh, right, here are all the things that annoy <laughs> me because they can't get their fucking projection right. Uh, I, I will not go into it too badly. I will just say, if you are adjusting your projector and you notice that maybe the images are not actually filling the space of the screen in your movie theater and there's like black around it, you can fix that. Mm-hmm. Or you could just go into the audience and say, hey, does anyone here know how to make a rectangle fill the rectangle? And I would say yes, because I'm a smart person, and I would go fix it for them, despite never using a professional projector. I'm pretty sure I could do it. Um, this is not that hard. Please do that, theaters. Anyway, other than that, um, also change your bulbs. The first theater was, it looked like they had not changed that bulb since the pandemic started. Uh, second theater was a nice bright, and that's one with, way I, I was happy to see it a second time because I got to appreciate all the animation when the bulb was bright. Um, the funniest thing for me, though, was how much, like, all the in-theater ads uh-huh. were the same they were this time last year. Like, they were showing stuff for Sonic the Hedgehog onward and, like, Fast and Furious 9. Some of those movies had just come out, and some of them were just about to come out but are still not out, and that was very funny. It really felt like stepping into a time vortex and going back a year, you know? Yeah, I had the same feeling. Like, there was a really, like, walking through, like, the threshold into the movie theater was just, like, it, it felt weirdly like stepping backwards in time. Um, both from just not having been in a building like that for over a year, but then yes, like all the advertisements and stuff like that, it was this weird patchwork of like stuff that yeah, either because it had been delayed so much, um, like it was still relevant or it was just like, well, who gives a shit? Like, let's just leave this stand up of Sonic the Hedgehog or, or whatever, like over here in the corner. Um, it was also funny that, you know, so all the d- tickets, were digital i mean most people i think just buy digital tickets anyways but literally like they had to be digital tickets um and the thing that scans them was broken and they just didn't give a shit and they're just like uh do you have a ticket i was like yeah you can just go in i'm like cool uh they didn't even check (laughs) it's like oh i did buy the ticket um it was really funny they so at, at marcus you buy your tickets online and then you do still go to the like the vendor and print them out but no one tore the tickets no one checked it was just completely an honor system yeah and like and that's fine. People are people are not animals. They they get it. No one was cheating. You know, it was fine. Yeah. And then other than that, like with my screening, like the bulb was definitely a little bit dim, but not like disastrously so. Um, the mm-hmm. thing that that I had sort of conveniently forgotten was the like, oh right, there's like 15 minutes of fucking trailers in front of yep. movies. It's like, oh my god. Um, I think I think. The PlayStation 5, Jonathan, has made me, like, way less patient because I don't deal with video game loading times anymore. That, like, any of that shit, it bugs me more than it used to, I think. Uh, because that's something I noticed when I played Resident Evil 7 because the loading times are probably a little bit better than the PS4 version, but it hasn't been patched, so it's basically you're playing a PS4 game. And, like, I have way less tolerance for just sitting there and dealing yep. with that bullshit now. I'm like... Okay, right, 15 minutes of trailers, and some of them were okay. Um, I was very amused by the Quiet Place 2 trailer and how much it was like, oh, this is just The Last of Us now. Like, this is, you know, obviously the actual movie will deal more with the, we have the monsters that attack sound or whatever, which is basically The Last of Us anyways, Um, but, like, more into that specific direction. But the whole, like, leaning into, I don't know if you saw the trailer, but it leans very into the, Yeah, it was with mine, too. yeah, Yeah, humans are the real monsters thing, and I'm like... You do you really need to like focus on that for the trailer? Like it's a little bit of a like okay, right? Yes, it's a zombie movie without zombies with like weird sound monsters. You're basically making The Last of Us. Um, I'm looking forward to like the HBO Last of Us adaptation where people start calling it a ripoff of The Quiet Place who haven't played the game. Um, but yes, there was like a bunch of like weird like stuff like that with trailers of 
I haven't watched a movie trailer against my will in over a year is part of not having gone to movie theaters. So the only movie trailers I've seen are ones that I wanted to watch specifically. Uh, And so watching a bunch of ones where I'm like, oh, I don't give a shit about this movie, really. Uh, That was an experience I'd forgotten about. I have have crossed a corner, Sean, Mm -hmm. where I am A-OK taking out my phone and scrolling Twitter while the trailers are on. Oh, yeah. Because who gives a shit? Like, put it away when the movie starts. But if you're going to do 20 minutes of trailers, I will take my phone out. I don't care. And and that's me. And I'm pretty picky about this. So, yeah. Uh, I did enjoy getting to see the F9 trailer twice, though. Because that movie looks insane in the best way. Yeah, that that was a good trailer. Like, I haven't even watched any of those movies. So, it's like, I'm not necessarily, like, going to go see it. But it was an enjoyable trailer on its own. So, it's like... If you can make yeah. the trailer itself like a compelling piece of like filmmaking on its own merits, like I'm fine with that. Most of them though are just like here's the super generic movie trailer for a movie I don't give a shit about. I do like with F9 not having seen any of those movies. I can't believe that this is the first time they have done Vin Diesel has a secret long lost brother who is the villain of the movie. Is this seriously the yeah. first time they've done it? Uh-huh. Wow. I like I thought for sure that must be the plot of like Fast 6 or something. Like I can't believe they they didn't mind that specific well for the plot until the ninth movie that's an impressive level of restraint on their part yeah i mean they did so like f6 was you had the luke evans villain then f7 was luke evans brother who was the secret long lost brother of luke evans comes and tries to kill them but then it turns out they both live and then yeah it's a whole thing it's very funny you've got han who died in f6 which is back now it's a it's a lot i'm i'm excited though it looks great um yeah so anyway uh spoilers for demon slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, mm-hmm. the movie, Mugen Train, in three, two, one. Is Rengoku the new best character in this thing, Sean? I remember, again, <laughs> go back, listen to the last week's episode where I talk about, I'm pretty sure, like, everybody who's come out of this movie fucking loves this Rengoku guy. I'm pretty sure he's going to be pretty good. When I said that, I basically knew that he was going to die. I didn't know for sure. But there had been enough, like, the, some of the ways that people talked about the character, and then also the song Homura by Lisa, which plays over the end credits, and is the melody of that is his main theme. Um, like, if you listen to the lyrics of that song, I was He's like, dead. I'm yeah. pretty sure this dude's gonna die. Like, this is a, that's a great song. Um, I, I, I've listened to that song a bunch because I just like Lisa, um, just, like, generally speaking, as a musical performer, so... Um, but yeah, so like I kind of went in knowing more or less that Rengoku's probably going to die, but I didn't know how or like in what context or who was going to kill him. So I was still very surprised by like there being this other demon at the end of the movie. I had no idea that was going to happen. I assumed that he would somehow sacrifice himself to kill Enmu, the main, the dream demon. Um, but yes, yeah, Rengoku, holy shit. Yeah, there's a reason yeah. why everyone comes out of this movie loving that character to death, uh, because it is his movie. And he owns it, and he's amazing, and he has, like, one of the most affecting character deaths I've seen in any piece of media for fucking years. Like, forever. It's, oh, like, incredible. Un- unreal. I So, I did not know. And I, I knew Ren Goku was a big deal in this movie because he's in every single piece of art associated with this movie, right? Yeah. And, and as you say, a lot of people talk about it. Um, but I didn't... I assumed he was a big ongoing thing. I totally assumed that he was just going to be, like... I, because I guess now it's like, okay, the Hashira are not invincible. Like, that's part of the point of this movie, right? Is that, like, the Hashira can die. Um, and, and so I just assumed he would be a big ongoing thing in the series. So I had no conception that this is where this movie was going until it went there. Um, 
But yeah, he is an amazing character. And like very clearly, I have to imagine, I, I have not read this set stretch of the manga as you have, Sean, but I have to imagine the key reason to do this as a movie is seeing Ren Goku as a character and saying, his whole arc is basically contained in these chapters and this is worthy of a movie, right? Like yes. Because that is the thing that changes this from like, because you could do actually several of the arcs they've already done as a movie if you wanted to, but there wouldn't be that same thing to like tie it together and deliver that punch. Ren Goku is the punch. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, like it would be really, really bizarre to get to episode four of season two and have it end with his death. Um, like yes. it would just would be such a <laughs> bad way to pace out a season of television. Um, whereas it is the perfect way to structure a movie. Um, that yes, I have to imagine that that is what they looked at and they saw he's here for like at the very tail end of some of that, the Hashira meeting stuff. And he like makes an impression because Gotoge sensei very specifically gives him more lines than most of the other Hashira. Um, but like this, but then it's like kind of, kind of set him up to be like, okay, you know who he is a little bit. He's got this like very like over excessively passionate quality to him that is like funny and a little bit disturbing uh, in that section where he's so kind of gung ho about killing Tanjiro in Nezuko when he thinks that they've broken the rules and all that shit. Um, and then having his whole story then contained here in a uh, volume and a half of manga. Uh, yeah, it's the right, it was 100% the right choice. And I have to say, uh, Satoshi Hino, who's the voice actor who plays Goku, the work he does to make that whole character just in this one movie um, and contain like the multitudes of who he is, um, that's one of the things that I think enhances the movie over how the manga reads is like, in the manga, I think it struggles a little bit to make you, like, fully love the character in that stretch of time. Whereas having an actor be able to embody the character, um, like Satoshi Hino, his performance of Rengoku just makes you love him. Almost from, like, minute one, where they he, they have the joke of him saying umai with every umai, single... Umai! Yeah, delicious. Umai, I every single bite he takes, um, which <laughs> is the joke, is how he's introduced in the manga. It plays a lot harder in the anime, where you just see it... Every single bite he takes, he says it. Uh, it's yeah, it's a great gag to introduce who he is. I I thought it was funny. The it was really crazy. The first time I watched the movie, I was like, "That's really funny." The second time, I was like howling with laughter. I found it like it, it gets funnier the more you watch it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I, it's an amazing performance. Going from that to what he's doing in his final moments in the movie, I mean, it is unfucking real and I think that combined with the character design and the animation and everything I oh my god this is a show that is like overflowing with great characters at this point and we're still pretty early in the story and he is one of the the, the clear MVPs you know it's it's incredible um, and and this movie is like all gold because you've got the, the main core cast that we love plus Ren Goku and then these two really compelling villains um, so it is just every moment you're on screen, you're watching characters who you are very invested in, um, which is awesome, you know? Yeah, no, it's, yes, it is, it is all the stuff you, I mean, it's, it's so a shonen show or a series like so lives and dies by its characters. And I think that's like one of the things that you know that Kimetsu has like nailed it and that like it is what it needs to be by how much affection you have for the characters especially like getting to see new animated material because for me again i watched the show in 2019 so for these actors this is like the first new material i've seen them do as the characters in like two or three years um so it's like it was like getting new stuff with them and be like oh right yes like 
all these characters are so vibrant and the actors are all so good um, and the writing is so sharp uh, that it, it is, as you say, it's overflowing. Every single character they introduce um, just pops so immediately and so effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how do we want to break this movie down? It is, as you say, sort of it, it, it's set on the train, but it does this sort of dream story conceit, which means it has more locations than just the train. Um, but how do we how do we want to break this sucker down? Because God, what a what a rich fucking movie this is. Yeah, I guess like kind of where I want to start is with that basic premise, which is something in I mean, I mean it's something that's in the trailers, so you know that like you're coming in and you have this villain Enmu, who's the main villain for that first stretch of the movie, who was the bad guy set up at the end of the the, the TV show. Um, and so you know that he does something with dreams. Um, you know that, especially because his name in Japanese is just like bad dream, basically, is what his, <laughs> is the kanji of his name is. Um, and so that is a very like tried and true setup um, that you've seen, in, and not just in anime, but like in like American media as well. Like I don't think there's any long running cartoon that has like some kind of villain type setup at its core structure that does not do the here's the villain who can like make people go to sleep or invade their dreams or whatever and you use that as a way to have like the characters face their like deep hidden desires and like over like re-encounter and reconfront their trauma like there's like five billion batman comics and cartoon episodes and shit that do this exact plot right it's a very tried and true structure buffy does it yeah. doctor who does it everyone does it yes yeah. um and so like and so I went in expecting that that's basically what the movie is as it deals with that and it does like what the core theme of that kind of story is is it's always boils down to in some way um that like reality has value because it is real right and the main characters have a face with the choice of do you accept the dream world or escape into the dream world or do you choose to fight for what is real and try to escape into the real world because reality is inherently valuable like can batman make the choice for himself to go back to the real world where his parents are dead and leave this dream world where his parents are alive because the real world has value on its own to escape into the dream is a bad idea right that's the core thing all the stories do to some extent and this movie does it and i think when i was about like over about halfway through the movie when it was getting to the point where Inmu is clearly going to be defeated and i had a hard time gauging because the movie's so good it was that like I can't tell how far are we into the movie. I knew knew the movie was two hours long, almost on the dot. I was like, I can't tell. Have I been here for an hour? Have I been here for almost two hours? Like, how far into the movie am I? I've just been so swept up in it. And I remember distinctly having this thought of like, well, I, man, are we really going to be able to have a whole pod? Like, I've enjoyed this movie, but can we do a whole podcast that's just that theme about it's not fleeing into your dreams? Like, I feel like you do that a million times. And then when you go to the third act and they introduce Akaza, the second villain of the movie, the one who kills um, Nengoku, then it makes such a powerful and what I felt was like such a potent thematic pivot to it's not really about the dream thing. It's about being human, right? It's about like it's about limits. It's about like this is one of the reasons why it's stupid that they didn't translate the fucking title because it's called Mugen Train for a reason. It's about Fi like finite time in mortality is important and it's what makes you human and to be infinite like the demons is wrong and is like it, it drives you to make the wrong choices to be the wrong thing to embody the wrong thing in order to like become this infinite creature 
Um, and it's about like living with that mortality even when it is painful. And that's such a much more powerful, interesting pivot um, that that is really what the movie is about. That that was the thing that when I was watching the movie, and I know, Jonathan, you have this experience with media as well, that I feel like I have moments when I watch some media now as a teacher that I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I, I wish that this was a movie that I could just bring into the classroom and just show all my students because it is such a powerful thematic point that is made so cleverly through such a slick pivot point that you don't even think about it when it happens, but just through the sheer ex juxtaposition of these two villains and what is happening in those two pieces of the story it is making such a powerful fundamental statement that makes all the stuff that came before it so much more compelling to me. And that to me is like the magic trick of this movie is how it is developing its themes and how it pivots into this like deeper kind of exploration of what it really wants to talk about. I agree 100%. And I had a similar... So I did not watch the trailers. I knew nothing. I, all I knew with this movie is Rengoku is cool. Mm -hmm. They're on a train. And it's the villain that we met at the end of... In episode 26. Yeah. You know? That's all I knew. Um, so I didn't even know they were going to do the dream thing. And when I saw, when it started, I definitely had that reaction of... Oh, I've seen this a million times, right? And like uh, Tanjiro's with his family and all that. But I think the movie pretty quickly cues you in that it's not just that and I think part of that is that like they actually don't spend too much time on that and Tanjiro is the only one who actually has that like temptation mm -hmm. for Inosuke and, and Zenitsu it's a joke and then for um, um, Rengoku it's it's like memory it's like he's processing feelings you know it's how they give us his backstory Um and then when you and then but but I did, did I have that same feeling. It's like okay, yeah. we got the big fights. This is really good. But it is when you get to that third act and the movie reveals what its ultimate tension is about, and all of that is cast in a new light. And that's why I enjoyed watching the movie a second time so much more because the the choice between like dream versus reality isn't really what the dream mm -hmm. scenes are about, especially for Tanjiro, because Tanjiro isn't tempted. He is not tempted to stay in the dream as soon as he knows what reality is. He wants to go to reality. And it is hard, it is sad, but it is not a temptation for him. And what it really is, is him grappling with what you're talking about, which is the finite versus the infinite. Which is that, like, as much as I want it, family, you are not infinite, you are dead. And I have to go with the stuff that is current and present tense. And that is Tanjiro from episode one to now. He is not someone who has ever languished in his grief you know he has tried to work with it and move forward and i think this movie like really beautifully actualizes that especially in the scene where he has to walk away from his family without looking back you mm -hmm. know um but but that's what that's really about you know for ren goku what we're seeing is like these these meditations on this this family he has and this kind of like fraught family life um and it just brings it all together so powerfully. It, it, it is a movie that really knows what it is. And when I say it uses the three-act structure like a fucking weapon, the, the thing that good three-act structure movies do, the moment you know they get it, is the second to third act pivot. Because this is the key thing I think a lot of people don't realize about a good three-act movie, is that the thing you do in the third act is not what you are setting up for the first two exactly. It has to be a little different. So like Mad Max Fury Road is one of the most teachable examples of this because it's extremely literal. They are driving on the Fury Road to get to the green place. That is what they think they are doing. And you as a viewer predict, even though you know what three-act structure is, you predict this movie will end with them getting to the green place or something like that, yeah. right? 
and it doesn't. At the they do it, they get there at the end of the second act, and oh shit, the world's destroyed. There is no green place. It was all a lie. There is nothing for them here. Max suggests, well, then let's take over the Citadel. We're going to go back the way we came. And the final tension of the movie is Max and Furiosa and all the women um, going back through that gauntlet and restructuring like this society to have a new future for themselves. And it's only by going on that journey that they realize, and this is also where like the issues of want versus need come in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That what they want and what they need are two different things. Um, and so that's a very teachable version of this. Uh, but so is this this movie, Mugen Train, because what you think is there's a demon on the train and we have to kill it. Like that is literally the setup of the movie. But killing the demon on the train is is not really what the movie is about. What it's about is surviving and saving lives and and doing what you can with the finite time you are given uh, and using that time responsibly for the best good. Right? Yeah. And those are the big ideas that only come into play when the characters are pushed further than they thought they were going to be pushed at the outset. And so the second to third act twist of we dealt with Enmu earlier than we thought is the key. Uh, and it is a phenomenal use of it that that you feel it in your bones just because you know how, how like good stories work. That when they beat Enmu, as cool as that whole sequence is, and he cuts through the fucking bone in the train, which is an incredible visual, you go, okay, well, it can't possibly be over, right? And no, it not only can't possibly be over, but like the upper third moon, which if you've seen the show, you know how bad that is, comes out. And Tanjiro is bleeding to death from a stomach wound, and Rengoku's all they've got, and now he's got to go into battle. Um, It is just an incredibly expert use of three-act structure. Yeah, and it's just so, it's so impressive to me the way that it's very smoothly able to, again, it, it's, so it's like, it's the opposite of what I was talking about at the top of the podcast about Great Gatsby, where uh, Baz Luhrmann feels compelled to have characters just state what is happening in the movie multiple times to make it very clearly obvious to the audience in case someone didn't catch on the, like, mild subtext happening in the dialogue. Um here that no point does any character ever vocalize the like thematic connection between the dream stuff the thing of like characters is wanting to escape into dreams and live a happy dream forever and all and that temptation and then everything that Tanjiro says at the end of the movie about Rengoku why Rengoku is better than the demons because he can't heal because when his limbs cut off they don't come back because he with all of that he's still willing to go fight you in the fucking dark of night where you have the advantage that like those two ideas are directly connected but the movie never has to tell you that it never has to have the Tanjiro then throw in a line that's like just like we would never choose to escape into a dream you demon we also would not choose to run away from you <laughs> right it doesn't have to say that because you feel that everything in the movie has exists for a clear functional purpose and so when you just like your mind wanders to well why did they have the dream stuff it like blossoms immediately to your mind of like oh it does all connect it does all mean the same thing even when you know Akaza is not even there for any like explicit reason connected to anything related to the plot like he just kind of shows up um and the manga gives you the direct explanation they kind of imply a little bit about why he's there with like their direction and him focusing on Rengoku and Tanjiro the way he does and you know that Muzan wants the Demon Slayers defeated and stuff um but it doesn't even like you don't even need a reason for him to be there for a plot reason 
he shows up there because it's like the themes of the story need him to be there for them to be actualized and to like come to their like full point and conclusion um and that's just such a smooth transition that to me is just so so slick that you can have a character that basically like appears out of fucking nowhere like akaza um, which in so many things would feel like an ass pull that like this character has not been set up. There has been no line of dialogue in the movie that's like establishing that there's another demon on the way. There's nothing that intimates it whatsoever. He just appears literally the fuck out of nowhere and then you just have to deal with it. And instead of it feeling like an ass pull, it feels like it is like the most compelling thing they possibly could have done for the story. Um, which goes to like Gotoge Sensei's like manga, which does the exact same thing. There is nothing that sets up Akaza being there. The way that character appears is exactly how it happens in the manga. Um, and like a much weaker movie would have felt compelled to put in a line or something or a scene earlier on to set up that this demon might be here at some point. And so they're like, no, the surprise and the impact of it is part of the point. Absolutely. And with all of that, this becomes a movie that is, this is, this is the, this is a Pyrrhic victory movie, yeah. right? If I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that Pyrrhic, word right. Pyrrhic, but Pyrrhic yes. victory. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I knew you're the English teacher who probably knows all the Greek roots, so I thought I'll ask you. Well, it's not um, a Greek root. It's, it's, there was an ancient general named Pyrrhus is where that comes from. Oh, uh, okay. Well, never mind. See, you, I'm, I'm, now, I'm, and you probably have a pretty good idea about how well he did as a general based on what the okay. word Pyrrhic victory, <laughs> the term Pyrrhic victory means. <laughs> yes, but it's a Pyrrhic victory movie because... As uh, Tanjiro very forcibly tells us, Ren Goku wins that fucking fight. Yes. He fucking wins. But he dies. And the death does not negate the victory because what Ren Goku is fighting for is... Th there's this line that he repeats to... Uh, as, what is it? Akaza? As, Akaza, yeah. Akaza. He repeats it to Akaza several times where he says, You and I clearly have different values, Right. At least that's how they translate it. Mm -hmm. He says that several times. Like, shut up. He doesn't say shut up. He's more polite. But he's like, you know, stop it. I'm not becoming a demon. You and I have very different values. And it, one of those different values is that Akaza is there to have fun and fight, basically. You know, and just kill and, and, and like, get Rengoku over to their side or something. Or, like, just have this fun fight with Rengoku. And Rengoku's point is, I, I might kill you if, as part of this. That'd be great. But I'm trying to protect everyone. There's 200 people on this train, and there's two of my underlings right here. And, or he wouldn't call them underlings, but yeah. you know what I mean. His, his junior's there. And what I am doing here is fighting until the sun comes up and you are gone so we are safe. And he does that, and he wins. But in that, he dies. They don't kill Akaza. Tanjiro, I don't know what it did. Does the manga explain when he, if he gets his sword back? <laughs> Because no, he throws the... there's there is a very good you know uh, Haganezka the sword maker has to pay Tanjiro another visit so there's a pretty good repeating joke okay. there with that because no he very much does not get his sword back. Okay, I was wondering if it's like a does he have to go to his for the forest next and like try to find it? Um, but okay, I was curious about that. But like yeah, he loses his sword. They're all fucking. Their bodies are broken, and it. It is a victory, but it doesn't feel like one. And it isn't a victory, but it does feel like one. And it's this crazy mix of emotions. And I have to say, correct me if there is a counterexample, I really struggle to think of another shonen anime movie that focuses on this kind of, like... Like, I feel like even if it's a shonen anime where the story itself frequently involves this kind of thing, a, like, nice Pyrrhic victory... 
I don't think the movies do that. The movies are all about the big successes. Goku always wins in a Dragon Ball movie, you know? Um, Luffy always wins in a One Piece movie. He doesn't always win in the show, but in the movies, there's never kind of I, One Piece Film Z does this a little bit. One Piece Film Z, which is a which is the best One Piece movie and is a fantastic anime film, is the closest I can think of to this. Um, but but it's a very unique thing this this story is doing. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is I th- I want to say it's the first Bleach movie. One of the Bleach movies has something that's relatively like that in the sense of. You know, it's a movie that I feel like is very self-consciously made from people who know that, like, whenever the movie had, like, the spin-off movie that's technically non-canon introduces a character, that that character will only ever be able to exist in that movie. And they kind of play with that a little right. bit, and that movie is actually quite good for one of those. Um, but, but I mean, generally speaking, no. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not typically what you would get in the movie and it's also i think what's interesting is that while this thing is i mean not only is it not uncommon in shonen it's like a very common thing like you you typically get here's a mentor type character that must give their lives at some point in the story um in this kind of way right like it happens in a bunch of them um but this is it happens in all western media like ben obi-wan kenobi has to die there's no version of star wars where obi-wan gets to live he's the mentor he dies but i feel like for this genre this happens so much earlier than you would normally get this yes like the equivalent moment of this in like naruto happens i mean like a third plus into the way of the shibuden side of naruto like it's pretty deep when you get like a moment that's like this that is this impactful and involves a character's death and stuff like that and the kind of the way it reflects through the plot and i think there's something so compelling and i think it speaks a lot to what kimetsu no yaiba is in cutting out the bullshit of the genre is that like especially with the movie that can do it even better than the manga does like it kind of recognizes we don't have to spend fucking chapter after chapter after chapter in, in multiple years of the story building up this relationship with Rengoku. If you do it well, there's no reason why you can't do it in that span of time. You don't need to like, what I think sometimes happens for these series that are, you know, weekly manga, they, they end up having to milk certain plot points in order to keep it going, right? Because it's your livelihood is to keep this series ongoing if the series is popular. It is so incredibly difficult to get a serialized story story like this to be successful and ongoing that you don't want to risk it by putting in a character that people love and then killing them off too soon and and like moving the plot that quickly and Kimetsu Yaiba just like doesn't give a fuck they're like no let's just do it like let's if we're going to do this story let's just do it in a volume or two of manga and then move on to the next thing that we're trying to do it's the same thing with the spider arc at the end of the first season which similarly feels like the kind of story that wouldn't happen until later like you point out jonathan it's like the thing that the tuning exams are in naruto which is like episode 50 plus of naruto um like let's just do those quicker and get to that faster and deal with it more efficiently instead of fucking around with a million different side characters that don't really matter and some subplots that never really going to resolve but keep the wheel turning and it's so straightforward and direct and effective and it makes it even when it's not technically a flat fresh sort of plot point or development it feels very fresh as someone who has watched so much of this kind of genre this is such a refreshing way to deal with this plot type. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, and I think another thing when you talk about serialization is it's also just hard to plan mm-hmm. stories this well when you're doing it weekly, right? Um, 
And like one of the shows that I've made multiple comparisons with Kimetsu is Full Metal Alchemist. And Full Metal Alchemist is about the exact same length as Kimetsu. It's 26 volumes, I think. Kimetsu is 23. Um, and it's a, it's a story that published monthly um, instead of weekly. So it took longer to publish, but it's about the same length. And I think they actually both have something in common of like they're a shonen anime that feels partially compressed. And I think that compression is partially like they had more they like they they're better planned stories than a lot mm-hmm. of these tend to be um and and like there's a similar level of like planting in chapter 1 that pays off in the final chapter in really direct ways that's really cool um and and Kimetsu just feels uncommonly well planned for a weekly uh, ch- uh, uh story and i think the Ren Goku stuff is a really good sign of that because the other thing that this inverts in like the mentor and i think what makes it so powerful compared to like other mentor death stories is that he never really got to be their mentor. Mm. It's it's the loss of the possibility of that that is so... That's what the song Homura is so much about, I feel like, in some sense, is like the loss of the, the potential relationship you could have had with this person um, that like I think he really would have taken um, Tanjiro under his wing, and I think he really would have been like a big brother figure or a father figure uh, for all those kids, and they were so in love with this guy because he's the coolest fucking shit, yeah. you know? Um and yet he still, in this really small amount of time he has with these three kids, he leaves this unbelievably immense impact on them. That's what the movie's about, yes. which is that finite things can leave immense impacts. Um, and, you know, the the scene that got me is the last scene where they're all crying and saying their things and then Inosuke tries to verbalize it in his own way and he's also sobbing. Yeah. And it's like, and seeing what was left behind by this finite thing. This is a movie that gets better the more you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, it's a thought I had of, there's like a whole meta component of the, like, the themes the movie deals with. That it's like, it is, right, it actualizes what it's trying to say. Not just for the world of the characters, but for us, right? That like, Rengoku himself, not just in, diegetically within the story, for us as viewers of this story, he's only around, again... It's not even two full volumes of manga, which is nothing, right? I spent like an hour last night and got through the entire stretch of manga that he appears in. um, Outside of like the two like scenes he's in, in the very end of what is covered in season one. uh, That's like volume six of the manga. Um, He's only in volume seven in the first half of volume eight. And yet the character leaves such an impact on the reader and the viewer that it actualizes that theme of that like sometimes why it is meaningful and why it is important is because it is brief right um which is also then symbolized by the fire right that fire it's a you know it's such a classic symbol it made me immediately think of Macbeth. uh shakespeare has a line when Macbeth is musing about mortality at the end of the play he says out out brief candle referring to life because he knows he's going to die um and that brief candle that is Rengoku, right, has such an impact. Um, And again, not just on the characters, but on you, the viewer, as well, Um, which that's just such a, like, cool use of, and I don't know how intentional that is of, like, you trying to do that as Gotoge Sensei, like, it's the story, or if it's just, like, it works out that way with the methodology with which they approached storytelling in Kimetsu no Yaiba, but it's such an impactful element of it that, like, it is something that is just literally true. He is literally like making that impact on you in the real world because his appearance is so brief because he dies so early. That's what makes it impactful. Um, That's just such a cool storytelling trick. 
it's so good. Uh, and it makes me so excited to see what they do with all the other Hashira because mm-hmm. this is clearly how Gotoge is theming all the characters. Because the one we've seen the most of before this is, um, uh, what's her name, Shinobu? Yes. Um, yeah. And, and she's also, I think, similarly themed. You've got the wind guy who is very aloof. Um, all of this, and I'm very curious to see how they play this all with the different elements. Yeah, because um, the end of this section of the manga, the end of Volume 8, sets up uh, Tandra and them are going to go off with, I forget his name, but it's the one who's, he's like a ninja dude who's always talking about how like flashy things are in that scene. Yeah. Uh, that Like that guy they're going off with to like the pleasure district, basically. Um, so yeah, so right. it clearly is setting up a, we're going to theme stories around the Hashira and probably have the main characters learn something important from each of them where I had to guess where the story is going. Yeah. Which is, I, I love as a structure. Yeah. Not, and again, this is what's so great about Kimetsu, and, and I think this is going to be an ongoing theme as we talk about on this podcast, is there is no individual ingredient that is like unprecedented. It feels like Gotoge is someone who like has read and internalized deeply just a shit ton of shonen manga and knows all of it the good and the bad and and is doing it not to reinvent the wheel but just to do it uncommonly well mm-hmm. um and i think like now that i'm starting to see this shape of like we're going to it's going to be a generational story about the hashira passing things on to the new generation again nothing inherently new there but I am very, very, very fucking excited to see every one of these characters in turn in a way that I think in another story, one, it would be happening over a thousand episodes, and two, like, I just wouldn't have that same kind of immediate enthusiasm because the first one you get isn't fucking Ren Goku. Like, yeah. Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Yeah. There's also a... Well, we're just on our thematic kick, yes. you know, here. And I'm sure we will get to the gushing over just all the cool shit because that's also like the the ingredient of this movie is the very high-minded smart intelligent theme stuff and then also holy shit thing go boom <laughs> you know um not thing go boom but like sword go fire yeah um yes but but in terms of theme stuff I, I made a tweet about this and i want to explain this um one of the main themes of the movie also is about ren goku and his like family's philosophy about what you do with the time you're given you know it was very just to quote gandalf the gray and lord of the rings yeah. Um, that if if he has these powers and he has this innate talent, that that comes with responsibility. You know, and this is not necessarily a, a new theme. This is Spider-Man also. Yes. With great power comes great responsibility, right? But there's a way that they do it that I found very affecting because they make it, again, it's very literal. It is Rengoku is pushed to the edge of of he has these beliefs and to keep them, he is going to have to die and give up his body mm-hmm. for it, right? And he does it. And that's what makes it so powerful that that his his mom has told him, you know, like, because you, you know, you have been given strength and that means you need to protect those who aren't as strong as you. That means you have a duty to them, not because they are lesser than you, but because they are also humans and have incredible innate worth and value. And that is what he lives his life by. And uh, there are two lines in the movie that got me particularly choked up. One is Inosuke at the end saying come on let's train yeah. that broke me the other one is is and this is a planting payoff moment because Rengoku's mom tells him I'm so proud that you're my son and then when he gets the sword in the neck and he knows he's dying he says I'm so proud I got to be you were my mom yes I, I'm tearing up to saying it mm-hmm. it is so powerful um, and, and so it brings this full circle that he's lived out this this value 
And it immediately made me think of, I don't know, you know, not that this is like super relevant and new, but like, I do think there's some American stories about heroes that don't get that idea that well. There's a lot that pay lip service to it, and it's there, but it's a banal thing. Yeah. There's some that do it really beautifully. I think Spider-Man stories in particular tend to do this really beautifully because it's there in chapter one of Spider-Man. You have to deal with great power, right? Yes. Um, but then there's something like the Brad Bird movies mm-hmm. and the Incredibles. And and Brad Bird is a great director who I have always felt fairly uncomfortable with the themes of his movies because his movies are very, very Ayn Randian in the sense that like the... And, and to a point that I find... Honestly, like, I wish we talked about it more as a culture because it's pretty fucked up in The Incredibles. And, like, Incredibles 2 goes whole hog on it in a way that I was really disturbed that, like, mass culture didn't talk about. But The Incredibles movies are about special people. Like, the line in The Incredibles 1 is, if everyone's special, nobody is special. And it's the whole idea of Incredibles is that there are special people and there are normal people. And the special people are better and maybe they'll use their powers to save the normal people, but they won't really care and they won't really engage. And what's important is that the normal people get out of the way and let the special people be special and that normal people should not try to be special because if they do, they are upsetting the natural order. Uh, and if you think I'm overanalyzing that and you've only seen that movie as a kid, go watch it. That is explicitly mm-hmm. the idea of that movie and like Syndrome, the character and all that. And Incredibles 2, which is only a couple years old now, goes even further on it. I mean, it's it's borders on, like, eugenics stuff, like, in those movies, about, like, what makes someone special. And I don't think, like, Gotoge-sensei was sitting down and thinking about The Incredibles 2 while writing Demon Slayer. But I do think, like, this movie for me is, like, a very powerful refutation of those kinds of ideas in storytelling, where it's not just, again, the lip service, heroes should help people and use their power responsibly, it is because this is wrapped up in a story that, as you say, Sean, is about the like the value of being human and the worth of a finite life and the the value of the small ways humans struggle and suffer and move on and persevere despite the challenges of living a finite life. That means that if you have power to to protect and help those people, it is like it is a sacred duty. It is a it is a profound duty. It is a meaningful thing, even if you have to die for it, especially if you have to die for it. Um, and and it's just like, man, I I am I'm happy that a movie with that message is making incredible amounts of money all over the world because it's a really really good humanistic message that I really really like. Yeah, and it's it's combined with also that like these characters are not like born inherently powerful right like like obviously right, different right. people have different advantages in different ways but like everybody has to train their fucking asses off to be able to do any of this right that's part of like tandra's whole thing at the end when he's like uh, it's like the one of the most non-tandra moments we've seen him in of like he he's like you see him feel like experience like real despair of and it's such a powerful moment where he says, you know, when I feel like I've just mastered one thing, I run up against another wall that feels unsurpassable. And there are all these people fighting miles beyond where that wall is. And I can't do anything about it. Will I ever be able to be like someone like Rengoku? And then that's where Inosuke comes in and says, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, let's yeah. go train while he's crying so much that tears are coming out through the fucking boar's head. Um that yeah that i think it's really important and it's one of the things that makes tanjiro such a compelling protagonist is it's like it's about hard work it's about that very like every day 
you go out and you do your thing like you know every day you you plant a tree outside and you jump over it every day and then eventually once it grows to full-grown tree you can jump over the tree it's like basically a proverb in japan um and it's like that's um that's very much the philosophy the show has it's like you have to put in the work in fact it's something that they don't get to this part in the movie but after this um it's something that Tantro talks to Rengoku's little brother because the thing that happens after this is he goes to heal at the Butterfly Manor and then he goes to Rengoku's house, talks to the brother and the father like what Rengoku told him to do. And that's how that section wraps up in the manga. And he tells the little brother, like, I was stuck trying to think of, like, what is, like, the thing that I could do? Like, what is, like, the secret move? Or, like, can I master the Hinokami Kagura and all that stuff? And, like, if I had just done that, I would have been able to save Rengoku, but he, but he says, but that's not, but I can't. That thing doesn't exist. There is no special breathing technique that allows you to go defeat the demons. Like, all I can do is pick myself up and go out and train harder and better um, for the next time this happens. And that's, like, kind of how this resolves in the manga. Um, and even when you don't have that scene in there in the movie, I feel like the idea is still expressed by them saying, let's go train um, and that that is like the message you basically leave off with with our main characters. And you see that this is also like what Rengoku lived by too. Yes. There's a great moment where he's about to square off against uh, Akaza and Akaza looks at him and like uses like his demon vision or whatever and like sees through the like breathing stance he has and you get this incredible just like still image of Rengoku like honing like like in a pose mm -hmm. and and Akaza goes oh my god he's honed himself to an to an unbelievable degree you know and like that this is this is this is an ascetic thing right this is a practice that that you do it is not a I am special and I just am you know? yeah you didn't come out of the womb being able to master the flame breathing technique and all that shit like that is something that only comes through like true dedication and practice as a martial artist right yeah. And so, so much of what Kimetsu is about is about potential turning into actuality, mm -hmm. you know? And and one of the beautiful things Rengoku has in his death scene is is acknowledging that potential in these three main characters and in, in if the four main characters and in Nezuko, yes. you know? And, and his belief in these people is not because... I think Tanjiro right now, you could go get my... get revenge for me, you know? It's that... You will one day, you could surpass me, you could be better. And even if you didn't, you're worth it, you know? Um, because look at how hard you're trying here, right? Yeah. God, there are so many moments at the end of this movie that just, like, kick you directly in the tear ducts, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, the moment where Rengoku, who, again, the, like, one thing you saw of him in the TV show was he was one of, like, the most staunch proponents of executing Nezuko and Tandra, like to the point where he so openly defies the master of the banner that he just says, I don't even understand what you're saying and that we shouldn't kill them. Like that doesn't even make sense. That Like those words don't make sense to me. Um, and then ending this movie with him say, with him acknowledging Nezuko and saying he saw her fighting and bleeding to protect humans. And anybody who does that is, is a proper member of the Demon Slayer core. And it's like, if that doesn't hit you right in the heart, I don't know what will. Yeah, that's one of those like, that's one of those moments that you definitely need the show for because yes. that payoff is unreal. Yeah. Oh my god, it's it's so good. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just it's compounding. It it really is like those last like fifteen minutes. Once 
once Akaza deals the death blow, it is just like this this cascading wave of payoff emotions. It is Rengoku's like final flash to his mother, the mother coming out as a ghost to like greet him into the afterlife, the way he's like posed in death with like his body kind of slumped over, or his head slumped over, but his body is still like on the ground, like in the position. Um and and then Tanjiro's speech into the forest, yeah. just yelling into the void, essentially, but also saying something very profound, everyone crying and expressing it in their own way. And Inosuke being, you know, I love Inosuke in this movie, yeah. Sean. Inosuke steals the fucking show if Rengoku weren't there. Uh, but like Inosuke saying really, really wise things, actually, to them. And he's right. But he's also crying because he's human and he's not, no one's infallible. And like, it's also okay to grieve, right? Yeah. Um, and it is very necessary. Um, on to, and then going around and, and you have the crow going to all of the different Hashira and they all react. And you tie it back around to the master of the manor who we saw at, at the beginning of the movie and this whole circular thing they do there. Oh, it's amazing. I actually wanted to talk about that. So you said that the scene, the like prologue scene where you have the master walking through the graveyard and talking about all of his children, all of the demon slayers who have died under his watch. Um, and he has his line about like, but but this is what they don't understand about humans. Um, and it is very clearly our little thesis statement for the movie, right? Yes. Uh, that's not in the manga, you said? Yeah, that's not in the manga. So yeah, so that's, I don't know, there might be an equivalent scene that happens later. Like I did, in the section of the manga I read, I did get to the scene that they fill in Kano's backstory that I said that they didn't have that in the section from season one. It's basically like an extra chapter that's added in at the end of volume seven, kind of at the end of like, here's okay. a side story that tells you how, where she came from. Um, so th that might be, they might pull some stuff from that scene from somewhere later in the manga, but no, the, like where that happens, because actually a lot of the setup is slightly different. I think they make a smart choice. I don't think I talked about this in the last episode at the end of season one, right? Um, Tanjiro, uh, Zenitsu and Inosuke all get a message from their crow of go to the Mugen train, join Rengoku. There's a demon there. You're on a mission. That's slightly different than what happens in the manga. In the manga, Shinobu tells Tanjiro all the stuff about like, well, I don't know what fire breathing is, Hinokokyu, um, which the way that's said in Japanese is more important than you would think. And I have no idea how the fuck the localization team is going to handle the very beginning of season two, because there's a like Japanese pun stuff that happens that is like thematically very significant uh, that I don't know how they'll deal with. But there's a reason why they don't call it fire breathing, they call it flame breathing. Go talk to Rengoku, he might know more about it. And Tanjiro and Zenitsu and Nosuke leave. And they're going to the train, not specifically because they know for sure that Rengoku is there and they have not been given a mission. They're going out because it's like, well, so we've healed. It's time to leave. Let's go. And then they run into Rengoku and then it starts, um, which in the manga, that plays fine. Like you don't need a reason for them to have to specifically go to the Mugen train. Um, here, they, they adjust that slightly, I think, to give season one a more definitive ending. So they adjust the opening of the movie ever so slightly to sort of accommodate that they are technically there to specifically meet Rengoku and specifically they already know that there's some kind of demon bullshit happening. Um, but other than that, yes, the scene with the master of the manor in the graveyard, that is not in the manga, but the scene at the end where he is the last person to get the raven and he says the line about that he's not going to be sad because he's not long for this world. And when he goes to the other world, he'll meet Rengoku and all of his other children that have given them their lives. That scene is in there. And so they basically took that setting and added a scene at the beginning to kind of set it up and give it that circular structure because the people who made this movie are very good at making movies. 
yeah, they're very fucking good at it because it's a great. It's that honestly, I knew we were in. I mean, I w- I knew we were in good hands because I'd seen the TV show, but I really knew we were in good hands when I saw that scene at the beginning of this movie because it's just such a good opening. It is such a it's such a quiet, beautiful, stark moment um, that gets you that gets you thinking. It plants an idea in your head, and then that idea is there for the rest of the film. It gives you a lens to read the movie, and and uh, especially in like you know big like pop blockbuster kind of space, it's so good to do that for your audience and tell and and be a little direct, right, and say. Here's what you should be thinking about as you're watching this this fun big action movie, you know, um, which is more than just a fun big action movie. You come to learn over the course of it. Yeah, and just the imagery because that because you don't see like the scope of the cemetery as much in the manga because it's just basically one page that you see at the end of that sequence. Um, so it's like at this opening scene where you get to see like, oh, this is. I love the idea of here's this massive graveyard that just like stretches on further than the frame can contain. Like you never see the full extent of it, but you get some like big pulled out wide shots where you see it's just filled with graves of all the people throughout the past hundreds of years, however long demon like Muzan has been around who have died in the service of the demon slayer core. Um, it's a very potent imagery that again, it like then sets up that third act twist. You have that imagery sitting in the back of your head about graves and specifically the graves of the people fighting demons. And then the movie ends with, Rengoku is going to be one of the people in one of the graves uh, in the future. Yeah. So, oh, it's so good. The animation there too. Uh, the background art uh-huh. is great in the show. It's so good in this movie that I don't know if you had this reaction, Sean, but the first shot is mm-hmm. like a low angle up on the trees into the sky, mountains in the background. I thought for a second it was live action. Yeah, I it is I so had a sp- ludicrously detailed. Yeah, I had like a split moment of like, did I in the wrong fucking theater? Like, yeah, it is. It is such a great. Shot and it's very funny because it is because that whole sequence looks so good, particularly the background. And then they cut to the very end of season one, and they just reuse some of that animation. And it's like, oh right, like it gives you this actually kind of useful comparison point of the TV show. You know, looks great because it's a great looking TV show. It's UFO table, of course it is. But like, but this is movie UFO table. So it's like just getting the contrast directed. Like, well, it looks good in the TV show version, and then you immediately get to, and now here's a shot on the train that is made for the movie. And it's like, oh my god, yeah, th- this looks very nice. The backgrounds, as you say, in particular, are like strikingly good. Can we talk about the animation then? Yeah, it's unreal. Uh-huh. And. You know, there's all the big moments that we could talk about because there's obviously there's big moments and they're incredible and they're out of this world, right? But I just, especially on my second viewing, because on my second viewing, I actually because I bought the ticket late, I was in the very front row, like craning my neck, um, and so I was right up on the screen, and and it had a brighter bulb in the projector and everything. And what struck me through this whole movie more than anything else, the character animation is unreal mm-hmm. how good it is it is because it was already the character animation is like one of the highlights of the tv show and we've talked about last week like how well it imitates the gotoge's manga art style and keeps a lot of those manga flourishes in the in the anime but like the number of frames of animation on every movement a character makes in this movie and i'm not talking about the big sword slashes i mean talking walking they're like cape fluttering in the background. It is like, it is a little, it's uncanny, honestly, mm-hmm. like especially having like watched the TV show and there's nothing wrong at all with the TV show. They're not cutting corners here, you know, much at all in that show, but it's just like the level of care and that like 
nothing looks remotely sloppy at or, or any shortcut shortcuts taken. It is like every pose, every keyframe, every character's facial expression. Uh, like so much of why Ren Goku reads so strongly in this movie, like the performance, yes, but also like the performance by the animators is just out of this world good. All of the characters, like the the character animation, which is something I think we uh, generally is 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 can be a hard thing to talk about in animation, um, but it is it is out of this world good, and I and I think how much is conveyed by all of the just just the basics of the keyframes and the in-between and the character poses and the number of frames and all of that. Uh, it, it is incredibly robust, great, thoughtful, artistic animation. Yeah. I had very much the same reaction of, of like, you know, the action scenes are fantastic, but I don't think like the jump is as dramatic as like, you know, if you look at the action sequence at the end of episode 19 of the TV show, it's not that far away from like the best stuff they do in the movie. Um, but like what makes the biggest difference is is in those little character moments and the fact that like it's kind of everything gets that level of polish and it's not just the couple of like really big character moments because you know the Kimetsu no Yaiba is one of like the best animated productions it might be the best animated tv production i've ever seen at least like for like an anime um uh, and like that art style that is like that kind of level of like complex um but like inevitably for a TV show, you're going to find places to cut corners because you have to. You know, they still made 26 episodes of 22 minutes of an episode over the course of half of a year. Like, you can't do that without finding ways to save money and save time. Um, and so the things that get cut are always little dialogue sequences and stuff like that. Meaning, and what I mean by get cut, I mean, should uh, more specifically, it's that's when you get the here is an image that is basically more or less a still frame other than a character's mouth is moving and then they might move a couple frames a little bit, shift their weight a little bit, move the eyes a little bit. But like the whole frame itself is not shifting in any meaningful way or the whole character isn't. They find we we can get away with only animating these couple of pieces of the frame. It saves a lot of time, right? Um, and that's fine. Like it works fine for a TV show. But for a movie, when you have here, we've got like a whole year plus to make one two hour thing. We can take that level of care to every single scene. And so you avoid that problem. And yes, that's where you get the character acting through the animation, like the physical acting of the characters, particularly the facial expressions, which are so important. It's like one of the most striking things about Kotoge Sensei's style um, is, you know, their art, as I said last time, is a little bit rough around the edges in a lot of places, but those big panels that focus on a character's faces when big moments happen are so important. And being able to have those not be basically still frames, which is what the TV show mostly did, instead of have those be full animated sequences. And the best example of it is Rengoku's death scene, where you have like the big money shot of him with the big smile on his face. That is basically the moment he dies, but he's, you know, his face is covered in blood, but he has this smile of, you know, having seen his mother's ghost who like approves of him as he goes to the other world. Um... But they add in so much around that, like before that building up to that smile and then afterwards as he starts to slump a little bit as he's finally passed. Um, that's stuff that, you know, the manga can't do because it's a manga, it's not animated. So you just get that one big smile and that big expression and they find ways in all those big important scenes and a lot of them with Tanjiro as well who has such great facial 
um, acting basically they do through the animation of building up to those really iconic panels from the original work. And then how do you fall away from those and add so much detail and so many frames and so much care to fill out that full range of emotions rather than just here's the one big shot from the manga. Let's replicate that as much as we can, add a little bit of moving elements in the frame, and then we need to move on because we've still got 20 more minutes to animate for this episode and we've got like two weeks left to, before it airs, right? Um, that level of care and thought and detail into those moments uh, I found incredibly striking. Yeah, I mean, this is much more like watching a... There are moments of character animation in this that, that made me think of like a Ghibli movie mm -hmm. where, you know, what is what is one of the things that sets Ghibli apart? Well, it's the time and money they spend on very talented animators sitting down and, you know, pouring over these images and, and every little moment is getting all this like love and care and attention because you have the time and money to focus on it. Um, in a TV show, that's generally the kind of stuff you don't have the time and money for. Um, and seeing it here, especially like Tanjiro, I think is what struck me most throughout the movie because we've spent so much time looking at him on the show and he's really well animated on the show. But just seeing that extra level of how much he comes to life as a character with, you know, a talented animator sitting down and sketching out every movement in his like in his thought process in his brain and all that like and you add that to the vocal performance that is doing a lot of that heavy lifting for us already and it just it makes that character even richer you know yeah. than he would have been otherwise like all the scenes in the dream and and like him reacting to things around him and his family and the scene where he has to walk away from his family in the snow and like insist that he can't look back it's just moments like that that just really get you on that level of this is phenomenal character animation. Um, there's one cut in particular in this movie uh, that is like a mix. It's it's in an action scene, but it is also just a great character moment. It's it's at the beginning when Rengoku, I think this is in all the trailers, when Rengoku kind of goes into action and he stands up and takes out his sword and his, his whole body and like aura kind of puffs up yes. and he has this smile that comes up. That cut, both times I watched the movie, my jaw dropped. Like, conceptually it's nothing special but it is like the quality of the animation and the number of frames and how striking an image it is it like directly gave me flashes to various ghibli movies like there's a scene in howl that has a similar effect um and stuff like that where it's like jesus this is a fucking movie i want the gif of this just to look at this fucking cut oh my god and there's a million of them in this yeah movie. one of my favorites especially like contrasting it with the manga panel it's like fun to see where they fill in like gaps um i love the moment um there's a couple things here like so the moment when he wakes up when rengoku wakes up um and then he does like that big technique that like shakes the whole train one thing that's fun is i, I like the contrast of how the manga does it versus the movie i think they both do that scene well for their formats is the anime you know you see the whole thing and he does one of his big like hono no kyoku whatever kind of like big attack and the whole train shakes in the manga, you see him wake up, and then it just is a panel of the train just shaking violently, and then it's a panel of Tanjiro <laughs> going, what the fuck just happened? And it's like a good contrast of that works really well for the manga. It's better to see him do the move in the anime and like seeing that difference. Um, but then after that moment, Rengoku just like appears out of nowhere right in front of Tanjiro, takes control of the situation, tells Tanjiro everything. Uh, and I love that just from the character's perspective of you think that Tanjiro is going to go fill in Rengoku about like what the scenario is because he'd been awake for like 15 minutes or something and Rengoku just woke up. Instead, Rengoku has a better understanding of what's going on than Tanjiro does, immediately gives him all these orders and then just zooms away to the other side of the train in like a trail of fire. 
Um, and the way that they animate that is so infectious. Like, you can't, you can't ha help but have a smile on your face seeing this character. Um, and you see, like, up to that point, he's either been a joke or you've only seen him in dream sequences. So you haven't seen him, like, be the proper demon slayer like Hashida that he is. Um, and so seeing him just take control in that moment and then zoom away faster than your eye can see. It's the first time Kimetsu has done that shonen cliche of like, my eyes can't even follow him. Um, and that's the moment they choose to use that line for. Um, the first time it's like a, you know, it's a, like a christening of a shonen series of whenever, when is the first time you get to the point where a character says, he's moving so fast, my eyes can't even follow him. And I love that that's where they do it here is... Rengoku like almost gleefully jumping around and like giving orders and commanding all this stuff and then Tanjiro goes up on top of the train is about to tell Inosuke what Rengoku just told him and Inosuke's like I know that guy already just told me like when the fuck did he even get to do that uh like that moment and like so much of the character animation and the thoughtfulness that goes into how you're like kind of reintroduced to Rengoku in his element here in the middle of a crisis so powerful and like takes advantage of the framework that the manga gives you with the dialogue and all that so well. Uh, absolutely. I love that whole analysis. The entire way they visualize Rengoku's powers in this movie are so cool because you get your first bit of action very early in the movie when they fight the, the first two little demons, which I was unclear. Is that supposed to be also in the dream? That's a dream, yeah. That's not real? Yeah, so that's okay. the first dream. I think that's a little bit more explicitly clear in the manga, but yes, as soon as the first ticket is clipped, they fall asleep. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought, especially on a second viewing. Um, but they have those two demons they fight first, and I love the way they. There's this. There's this one cut where Rengoku like gets his sword out and starts like the flame technique, and they cut to black and do this like sweeping shot over like all these lanterns like lighting, yes. and then he cuts like through all of that, and it like lights up the whole frame. Um, oh my god, it's so cool. You get to the end of that, and that's where um, Inosuke and Zenitsu and Tanjiro all go like, please be our be our Anaki. They're using the word Anaki. Yes. And it's so funny. And like, Anaki's Rengoku. And he's like, yes, I will teach you. And it's very funny. But like, also you in the audience are doing the exact same thing. Yes, yeah. No, that's a great moment. And that's one where the movie, so in the manga, he only fights one demon, and they add in that second one there, which I think is a good choice to give you like a little bit more action at the beginning of the movie. And it does accentuate then, yes, you have um, all the characters. <laughs> and I love these moments where they get deformed because you have a similar thing in Zenitsu and then Inosuke's dream in particular where you have these like weird other versions of the characters you get to see um, that like it's where the writing comes across really well that they just speak totally differently and you get the voice actors you get to have so much fun just being like, Aniki, come train me. And they all like speak with different Gobi, which is like the like little thing you put at the end of a Japanese sentence that if you're like kind of in a cartoonish way you can make it like a bunch of different things to convey different things about the character um and so they all have different kind of gobi they use um yeah and then let's talk about it because it's very similar the Inosuke dream sequence that has a similar thing where they deform all the characters <laughs> um and it's so great particularly Tanjiro who is a like um Tanuki basically or like a Japanese raccoon dog um and 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 in Inosuke's vision that's what he is and he's like like you know he's minion number one basically and uh he ends all of his sentences with the word pone um which is a like yep. the sound of a, that a like a cartoonist sound that a tanuki makes and then you get a little like card that is the way the manga does it the anime just does it as well that just says ponjiro which is his name as little tanuki guy <laughs> ponjiro is so great and it's so <laughs> fucking funny uh and then uh zenitsu is a mouse and he's chuitsu because chu is the sound that a mouse makes like pikachu 
Um, and yes, like all that shit. And then you have the little rabbit Nezuko that is adorable and is minion number three. And he gives her yes. a really, really sparkly, shiny uh, acorn, and she's very happy about it. And she goes and joins him on the cave expedition squad, and it's the best fucking shit in the world. It's so I. Oh my god, Inosuke in this movie, every single second I love, and his cave expedition squad is so good. I have to wonder if we went to Japan right now, Sean, how much Ponjuro merchandise could we find? I mean, there has to be, right? Yeah, it's such a good, funny, like fake, weird mascot version of Tanjiro. It's so <laughs> hilarious to me. And I love that. So in Zenitsu's dream, he's all he's just completely do doting on Nezuko and like going around a peach farm with her. Um, but I also like that Inosuke also is like doting on Nezuko. Like she's the one who like gets to be his like chief minion and yeah. he gets she gets the sparkly acorn and all that um it's very funny uh, inosuke in his own way doting on nezuko um every moment inosuke in this movie is so great they talking about character animation obviously his face is covered but they do they get to do a little more with the mask but also just his body language is just so great mm -hmm. i love at the beginning when he's whole, you know jumping out the window because he wants to race the train <laughs> um, and Zenitsu's having to pull him back in or the moment that i was surprised that my theater didn't like burst into applause was when he just jumps through the roof of the train they're like go wake up everyone and then he's like i have to go find them and then inosuke just punches through the train and comes up on top and then he just fucking owns the fight with Enmu. Yeah. Oh my god. Inosuke is the MVP there. Uh, and then his scene at the end. Everything. It's Inosuke. I love Inosuke so much. I also... Correct me if I'm wrong. It looked like they did his swords a little more manga accurate yes. in this. Where the chips are more uneven. And it's like more like gnarly and fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a, it's a kind of a mix of... They have a little bit more of the more uniform... Like kind of buzzsaw pattern thing that he's got in the anime. But they do find spaces... To make them look a little bit more just like, yeah, these like really fucked up. You like he took a rock and hit it. Yes, over what his sword again. would actually look like if you took a rock to to its bladed edge. Um, yes. So yeah, I love. I do love that. Like in this whole movie, you never see him without the boarhead on. Um, he he yeah. has the boarhead on for the entire two hour long runtime. Um, yes, because this is definitely like of the main characters. It is like obviously Tanjiro is the main main character, um, and then Inosuke is the other one who feels like gets like primacy and then Zenitsu and Nezuko have good stuff but like they're you know which is how you should do it like if for a story arc that's only this long pick a couple of characters to really focus on and then have the other ones play supporting roles uh, but it is very satisfying having Inosuke have this more like sort of primary role in the goings-on particularly with the fight with Enmu um, and yeah I really like that in many ways, he's a lot more impressive in the fight with Enmu than Tanjiro is. Like, Tanjiro kind of has to keep up with him because once Inosuke wakes up, he's the one who figures out where the neck is because he's got his, like, beast-breathing whatever technique that can, like, detect where demons are. Um, and then he, because of the boar's head, and I also, I like that it's, you get Tanjiro's theory of the reason why he's able to avoid Enmu's gaze and prevent going to sleep is because he has the boar's head on. But then you later get Enmu's internal monologue running through the characters and being like, oh, I should have killed that one first because they did this, this, and this. Oh, but then I should have killed that one first because they did this and this and this to me. And when he gets to Inosuke, he says, it's like, but he could just sense my gaze. And I like more that it's like, it's something that Inosuke, it's not just because he had the boar head on. It's something that he could actively do because he's got, his senses are dialed up to 11. Um, and it's something that he was like actively doing as a fighter. So you get to see that's like, you know, Tanjiro's not the only one who gets to do cool stuff or, like, 
be the main dude in a fight in many ways he doesn't get to in either of the major fight scenes like he's contributes and he's important but he's not like the the one who kind of decides things for in either of those major climactic battles yeah, but I just love because they they get to do this in the Spider Forest story arc too, where Inosuke and Tanjiro team up and do a big battle together. And I want more of that mm-hmm. in my life because it is so good. And in this one, like, it, it's so cool to see them fight together because as much as like Inosuke is you know an egomaniac who always wants to be in charge, they actually work together very well. And I like that Inosuke is trying to do the thing like, no, I'm the boss. But then also when Tanjiro like gives him this one suggestion, he's like. That's a great idea. You get to be my minion number one. Yes. <laughs> and um, Yeah, and it's particularly it's yeah. he because he has a moment where he says like, but okay, but I'm going to be the boss of, of the team or whatever. And the Tantra just goes, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, and he's just like, like Tantra doesn't give a fuck. He's like, yeah, of course, yeah. It's great. In Japanese, he literally says like, wakata. Yes. Like he just is like, okay, I understand. Um, and he says it like very formally. Um, <laughs> and it's, he, he, he knows, he will play along with the Noah's case yes. game. Um, they work together very well. Uh, and although it's not for lack of Tanjiro being a badass, because the idea of Tanjiro overcoming uh-huh. the dream thing by getting flashed, his eyes going white, and then cutting his own head off in a dream over and over and over again, that's like up there with like Doctor Who mm-hmm. Heaven Sent punching through a diamond wall of a really fucking cool dream plot device. And the part where it's the climactic fight with Enmu. And he keeps falling asleep and you just get these flashes in like black and white sketch of him like cutting into his neck over and over again. Uh, That is really fucking badass. Yeah. And then he, and I love that moment where he's about to do it because he's so disoriented. And then Nuska stops him and says, this is the real world, idiot. Like, don't die such a stupid fucking death um, and saves his life. Yeah. Inosuke, if only we all had a friend as good as Inosuke. Exactly. Stop us when we're about to cut our own head off. Um, yeah, Inosuke, I love him, man. He's such a great character. He is, I'm so glad he has such a big part in this movie. It made me extremely happy. Yeah, so let's run down some of the, the other characters. So we've got Zenitsu, uh, who, again, he doesn't have, like, a huge, uh, role in the proceedings, but some of the stuff he does is quite fun. I mean, I love his dream sequence with Nezuko. Um, and I love the moment where in his dream, Nezuka, where he's like, let's go over there across the river. And there's like a beautiful flower over there. We'll make a wreath of flowers to put on your head. And she goes, oh, across the river. Oh, but Zenitsu, I don't know how to swim. Oh, that's okay, Nezuko. I'll put you on my back. I won't let even a single toe get wet. Uh, and like that whole thing is very funny. He's, he's fantastic. He's very funny. He also does get a huge yes. like applause moment of of his big lightning strike where you have um, you know Nezuko kind of getting into trouble and then like the drums start on the soundtrack and it's just this flash across the train and the animation of that oh man it is a cool fucking moment yes. yeah and arriving at like the pose uh, it's it's very good yes yeah his one uh, and yeah his one use of the his lightning breathing style uh, is very fucking sick um, yes yeah. And then he just has Nezuko. a lot of good stuff at the beginning of the movie with Inosuke. Like, they're back and forth about, like... Because yes. he's the only person who knows what a fucking train is. So he's like, stop, you idiot, yeah. you're going to get us arrested. Like, stop, you're going to get yourself killed. Stop, 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 stop. It's just a train. Please stop. Uh, at the end, he's got some very good stuff. Uh, I think the actor does a great work with, like, sober Zenitsu at the end reacting to Rengoku's death Mm -hmm. Uh, and also there is a shot at one point of him trying to get Nezuko back into her crate as the sun is going up that is very funny Um, but Nezuko herself 
Not in the movie a ton, but it's like with every character, every moment she has counts. And I really love the Nezuko stuff in this. I love her getting out of the box and banging her head against Tanjiro until she starts to bleed, which helps wake him up. And then she's burning off the ropes. And then she just goes to town against the demons. Her little fight scene, it's like less than a minute, but it's a really cool fight scene with her using like her fucking sick nails to just cut all this shit up. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. I particularly really like that moment where she comes out of the box and it's this little like kind of like silent um, like the manga does it really well where it's like two pages with no dialogue on it at all because it's just her walking around being like what the fuck's happening Rengoku's like asleep but still choking a little girl out everyone else is asleep <laughs> Tandro's like you know having some sort of nightmare and she's like what the fuck is happening it's like wake the fuck up and then she and there's a fun thing so the the manga makes it explicit that the reason why she headbutts Tandro and then she starts bleeding from the forehead it's, it has a little like cut in panel that with like an arrow on this like very deformed like cartoonish depiction of that sequence pointing to Tandra's forehead saying it's like hard as a fucking rock basically it's like that's why her head (laughs) bled that's something I wonder if we'll ever get like a canon explanation or if it's just a weird quirk of why is Tandra's head so fucking hard uh because it's a very funny character detail the way that he headbutts everybody um and nobody can stand up to the the Tandra headbutt not even Nezuko yes Oh, it's it's very good. Nezuko, Nezuko is great. Uh, the voice acting for Nezuko also, like, I just really appreciated like how much character is in all the little like grunts and stuff mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, which we, I think it's just because we talked about it last week, and then I was listening for it, and it's like, man, it's it's a legitimately great performance despite having almost no dialogue, which is weird but awesome. Yes, but she does. Akarikito, the voice actress, does get some dialogue. Just in weird, crazy Zenitsu dream form, which I thought was very funny. Like that, like it's weirdly affecting the shot because, you know, they play it up well with like the editing of when it's the shot that like you see them from behind and then it cuts back and you see that Nezuko actually doesn't have like the muzzle in and she just gets to talk and you're like, oh my God, it's just Nezuko. And there's a similar moment in Tandra's dream where you see her there and it's like she isn't demonified and it's like really quite powerful. It's really quite powerful because in Tanjiro's dream, you hold off on seeing her for most of the dream stuff. She's not around. She's out doing something else. And so it comes at a very key moment when Tanjiro sees her human form and it is a turning point. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so should we talk about the villains? Uh, yeah. So we've got our two villains. We've got Inmu, who's who's sort of set up to be the big bad. And then you have Akaza. Um, Inmu... Uh, played by Daisuke Hirakawa, like, just fucking knocks that out of the park. It's oh, so he's good. so good. Kon Korori. Yes. The way he says that over and over again in this sing-song voice. Uh, it's it's actually, I don't want to be too much of a dick, but I did, like I said, I stepped into one of the dub screenings for like two minutes just to see, take a look at it. And it was that, it was the scene where he's trying to get um, it's where Tanjiro first cuts his head off and he's going like, he's like, Nemuri, Nemuri, like over and over yeah. again uh, in Japanese. But in English, it's it's just the, the actor, like clearly it's a guy with a deeper voice trying to do a higher voice going, go to sleep, go to sleep. And I was like, this is really bad compared to the Japanese uh, because that, his, him in Japanese is, is a great performance. Yeah, that's one of those when I was reading through the manga chapters last night, I couldn't help but hear the character's in that voice like it's so the character the character talks in such a ridiculous theatrical way um and the performance just so captures exactly what that character is supposed to sound like um yeah like it's just like 
you know, I don't like Inmu is not a, a you know, he's not a d demon that has like a lot of depth to him that I think is actually kind of appropriate compared to some of the other ones we've had. You don't get like a, here's a big flashback that shows why he's a dick or whatever. Um, he's just kind of a dick. Um, but he's a dick, but you do get the death moment yes. where it's just him running through all this stuff and like an, a shocking amount of like pathos shine through, even though it is not him like reflecting on his humanity, there is a desperation to it that reveals like this sort of curdled thing inside this character, which was this like desire to impress and be better and like overcome and prove himself superior. Uh, and he couldn't and he dies in anguish and you feel bad for him in the way that you usually do when a demon dies. Yeah, in particular, there's a line. And this is where like, I, like, I have to say, like, the more I read of the manga and then thus of the show as well, like the more and more impressed I am with Gotoge's dialogue writing because it's like, it's really the dialogue in Japanese I think is really striking because there are just some lines that characters have that like hit really hard um, and his line as he's dying one of the first things he says is like I haven't even done anything yet um, which in Japanese is like I haven't even tried my hardest yet is what he literally says like he uses the word gambari there um, and it's like a really striking moment where it's like you feel his frustration where he's supposed to be so powerful because he got Muzan-sama's blood but he's jack shit, right? Like, even he um, can't surpass that wall, you know, which is the thing that Tanjiro then is going to talk about, that the wall that separates him from the upper demons in the Junikizuki, which I guess they're not the Junikizuki anymore because now there's only six of them. It's just the upper six. Um, so it's just you got to change their name to the Noku Mizuki, which isn't quite as cool, or the Noku Zuki, I guess is what they'd be called. Not quite as cool sounding. But he, his frustration at not being able to surpass that and feeling like he underestimated everybody, thought he had the coolest plan in the world, which, to be fair, is a pretty cool plan. I'm going to turn myself into an evil demon train. I, I can tell why he's very proud of that one, because it's like, that's a pretty fucking cool evil villain plan to be. It's like, yes. I want to be an evil demon train. Um, and as soon as he fulfills that plan, he just gets taken out like a scrub. Um, and so, yes, like that moment is really effective at giving you this last moment of like, brief insight into the character um while like i think it's appropriate that they don't do like here's a big flashback that they've done with a couple of demons of like what was the thing that happened like he was a spurned author he was a child who died be like at a young age from illness like the other ones we've seen we don't get exactly that with him and i think it's smart that they don't linger on that that much but just give you this one moment of insight into yeah his sort of obsession with being better um, and the ways in which he kind of fucked up and why he died. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, so love that character. Love his whole powers and like the, the, the like hand that has the mouth with the teeth and it's all gnarly. Um, there's like this little... This is the kind of thing where I can imagine this might have been expanded on in like a TV version, but I like how it works here where it's all the people on the train are like tuberculosis patients. That like that's how he's like getting them to work for him is they want to go live in their dream. That's just such a creepy, like, great idea. Mm -hmm. um, I love the character who goes into uh, Tanjiro's, like, soul and sees this, one of my favorite moments of animation in the movie, this big, beautiful, like, blue, watery expanse and the, the purity of it. And on a second viewing, this actually got me a little choked up because I wasn't even looking at the subtitles. I just heard it in Japanese and understood it. But the way he says, like, like oh, you, you, you brought me to that, this, this, like, star in the sky that is his soul because you knew it's what I wanted... And it's like, oh my god, and he just realizes how like pure Tanjiro is, and he's moved by it. I really loved all that. Yeah, all the stuff with like the weird dream logic um, of like, oh, the 
thing is like the dream is like localized around a certain perimeter around the dreamer and then anything outside of that brings you into the realm of the subconscious where there's this core that is the representation of the subconscious that you shatter um and yes like all of that stuff i think is really good like I like that they're efficient about it in the sense of you never, you don't dwell much on Zenitsu and Inosuke at that point. You get like a little gag that Inosuke has this like crazy demon boar in his mind's eye that is chasing them. And then Zenitsu's world is completely pitch black. And then there's this weird gaunt version of like dressed all in black version of Inosuke or of, of Zenitsu that's in there with scissors um, that attacks them, which is good and creepy. Um, but the two ones you do see, Dengoku, who is like, it's like this marble tile floor with flames popping up. Um, and then him fucking like his survival instinct is so strong. He senses that something's going to happen to him. And he just like instinctively reaches out and prevents her from, um, destroying the core. And then yes, Tanjiro's is the one that's really striking. This perfect, like perfect blue sky with this perfect blue like water that is so perfect that it's like a mirror um, reflecting the sky. So it's perfect. And then, you know, the, the, we talked about this last episode about season one, that one of the things that is, and I can say this is very much continues to be a very clear element of what they're doing um, with the story is Tanjiro is represented as the sun, right? Because he is, the thing that kills the demons and it's his warmth and his compassion and his kindness is ultimately the the demon the blade of demons destruction the kimes no yaiba right like that's clearly what it's building up to and every time the story moves forward from what i've experienced it's more and more like yep this is clearly like what they're doing on um, what they're building up here because his soul is represented as the sun floating above the ocean in the clear blue sky and yes these little sprites um, that are like the representation of his kindness that lead this young man to the soul um, even when just because they know that that's what he's looking for um, and in specifically the manga has an expansion on that where there's you know this is where the Duotoge uses some of this like disembodied narration to say like specifically like some of that like kindness is like given to the boy um, so like when he leaves the dream the sprite kind of stays with him in his own heart as this like metaphor for Tandro's kindness and compassion touches him so heavily that, that he then carries with it that with him to, to then become a more kind compassionate person. Um, that like whole concept, yeah. it's such a beautiful representation of who Tandro is as a character that when you see that that's what his soul looks like, you're like, that is absolutely perfect. Like it's the perfect conceptualization of what makes him remarkable as a protagonist. So that image is in the manga, yes. that basic. Because mm -hmm. I have to imagine that like reading that was another reason why they wanted to do this as a movie because that's such a movie image. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like in a theater on the big screen, especially like when I was sitting in the front row, I, like head craned up, seeing this just big blue expanse, like it would be cool on TV, but it's a movie image. Yeah. And it, it is very moving in a theater. Um, and I love it. Not that it's even like the most complex thing to animate. It's just so beautifully done. Yeah, it's because it's like that big panoramic kind of vista shot. Yeah, that like yeah. particularly plays well on a big movie theater screen. And, and the way that it, you know, because it literally you open up into it because he cuts through like the membrane of the dream or whatever and then opens it up to yeah. step into the realm of Tanjiro's subconscious. And that's how you're presented to it visually. That yes, it's a very cinematic um, moment uh, that yes, it is. It is like was very kind of like breathtaking when i first watched it yes so then we have uh akaza 
the the third uh, the a higher third yes um who i assume we're gonna have to get the the point eventually where our three main characters confront the person who killed their beloved ren goku and he will be an ongoing thing but man what a fucking bastard that dude is and the battle he and zenitsu have is one of the best animated things i've ever seen not zenitsu ren goku <laughs> be weird if he fought zenitsu but maybe eventually not yet yeah no it's a great like just the moment when he appears in the smoke and and Rengoku and Tanjiro both like eyes widen and they look over um and then you zoom in on the eyes and it says upper third yeah. which is just such a good shonen thing to do of like it's not even like the weakest of the upper demons it's not upper six it's upper three so he's like in the top three most powerful demons not including Muzan um and that's the upper one that shows up is the upper third um and yes, I, I love that, like, you, you, like, get what the character is and who he is so quickly of his whole, you know, how he fits into the scheme of the themes of the story, right? Of that he is some, must be some sort of, like, ancient martial artist from several hundred years ago at this point who got turned into a demon specifically for this pursuit of immortality to be able to train and be his perfect ideal self for all time again not something that is like a hugely original character concept it's vaguely cell-esque it's the like perfect like perception or the the uh pursual of perfection through immortality is not an uncommon character concept for shonen like there's a very specific naruto character that's similar but i think there's something here because of how well he's slotted into the themes of the story highlights that character trait and makes it more interesting and feel more original of uh, his offer to Rengoku of like come on be a demon be like me be someone who can like you aren't even at your physical peak yet you in a couple of years you'll be at your peak but then after that point you'll start to degrade if you're like me I've been this badass and super cool for hundreds of years and you can cut off my arm and it comes back you can disembowel me and I'll grow those back um like why would you ever let every all this training and everything you've done go to waste and the way that the character just embodies that like counterpoint to what the what Rengoku and Tanjiro represent um, so potently. Um, it just speaks to the quality of the writing because all that character's dialogue is just pulled straight from the manga. And then also we have here uh, a favorite of the podcast and voice actors, uh, Akira Ishida, uh, yep. the me best known recently in Weekly Suit Gundam as uh, Asvan Zala from Seed and Seed Destiny, also the main character from Persona 3 and the different manifestations of the main character that are then voiced by the same voice actor, um, as well as a lot of different things. Uh, he's in everything. Uh, but he shows yes, up. and he's very good at just shit-eating villain. In this. Yes, yeah. yeah. He just, like, you know, he just gets this really juicy third-act appearance. Just fucking eats up everything he can get. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just such a striking character that is made all the more compelling by his then desperation at the end of that fight to leave, to escape the sun. Um, that, like throws all this like water on what he was on all of his bullshit as Tanjiro like very correctly identifies of like shut the fuck up like you like oh I'm mortal for all time and I'm perfect it's like you can't even walk in the sunlight you cowardly piece of shit um like that dynamic who that's just that's fucking golden like that's just such a great it's just such good writing like it's such a great concept for a character how it fits into the other characters that exist how it fits into the plot um, to give you what is one of my favorite moments in any movie I've seen in recent memory, which is Tanjiro yelling at him into the forest as he yeah. leaves. Going, it's like, you 
coward. Come back here, you coward. Like, fight us. Um, because we fight you in the night where you have the advantage. We fight you even though we get tired. We bleed. When we our bones break, they are broken. When our limbs are cut off, they are cut off. But we fight you anyways. So come back here, you coward. Because Rengoku won. Um, like, that moment... Like, I don't know how you're not crying in the theater at that moment of, like, just how powerful that is. It's so powerful. And that character is just such a great literalization of all these yes. ideas. And and I also love the idea that I think he even calls out, like, at the beginning, he's killed other Hashira. This yes. is not the first time this guy has come around and killed a Hashira. This is another day for him. And, and part of what is so powerful is that, like, Tanjiro gets him to bleed metaphorically with that speech, right? Yes. And you can even see it on his face, like this fucking kid. Because this is, in just the events that happen, not something new to this guy, right? But it is in how Rengoku and then Tanjiro frame it to him that, that you see that this is the, the Pyrrhic victory of it all, right? Yeah. Um, that he wins, but he loses, and they lost, but they won. Um it is so good. I love the the visual design and the way like that fight is so focused on like Rengoku cutting through his arms and cutting his arms off over and over again, and they just keep snapping back. It's like fucking like Boo in Dragon yeah. Ball, except if Boo were filled with blood, which would make that much more disturbing, yeah. and it is more disturbing. But like literally, like the first move of the fight is he goes for Tanjiro on the ground, and Rengoku just cuts up through his arm, and then it comes back together like fucking jelly. And it is such a great literalization of that idea that Tanjiro later calls out of like our limbs don't grow back you know we don't survive cuts we bleed we die our bones break and he is just he's fucking he's putty you know in this fight um, uh, until you know uh, Zen, uh, 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 Rengoku does get the sword halfway through his neck which is pretty fucking great yeah no it, it, it's specifically like I think it's sort of implied and I think the manga makes this a little bit more explicit although they lose out on moments that the anime has to do this of like the main reason why Rengoku loses is just because he gets tired, right? Is he gets tired because he can't fight at that level forever. Um, because I'm, so the manga, the way they depict it, that whole kind of middle section of the fight before Rengoku unleashes the, the Ogi or the secret technique of the flame breathing style or whatever. Um, that whole section where Rengoku's eye gets like crushed and he gets like punched in the stomach and like where he takes those injuries in the manga, that basically all happens off page because it like the one chapter ends with their like big exchange between the two of them. Rengoku is clearly exhausted, and then at the beginning of the next chapter, it's jumped forward into the fight where you, it's clear that they've been fighting more or less a stalemate. But Rengoku has accrued injuries, so he's bleeding, his eyes hurt, like all that has happened in between chapters, which works well for the manga. But there's something about the anime, like you get this full fight, you get this grueling exchange over and over again that for Akaza keeps resetting to zero. And then for Rengoku, all of those blows take their impact on him. And the anime being able to follow you through that whole fight and see every step along the way, um, as well as then when the Ogi happens, the manga, it's all from Tantra's perspective, so it's obscured by smoke. When Rengoku goes in with his ultimate technique and you get just excruciating detail, he fucking carves Akaza to pieces, right? He, like, goes in and goes down, screams, pulls back up, like, goes back up through the other side of the body, and you get all these movements that still, like, it fucks Akaza up, it takes Akaza longer to recover, um, but still it's not enough to kill him, and in doing so, Rengoku's impaled. 
like following through each beat by beat the step of that fight and how Nengoku is sort of willed down to nothing because he can't recover. It's so brutal, but it is such a great exploration of an expression of visually and through like movement, the themes of what they're dealing with. And it goes back to something I was saying with that comparison to like the Incredibles and the mm-hmm. Ayn Randian view of heroes and like the demons are the special ones in this story. Yeah. They're the ones who are not, they're not born, they're turned, but they are just granted these powers. There's no training they have to do. There's no, this, this is innate. They get to reset to zero, as you say, every time. Whereas, you know, Rengoku, just to make it that far into the fight, has to train an entire lifetime and withstand all of that pain. Um, and so it is, it is really putting these two, like, almost ideologies against each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, it's so powerful. It's so good. And yeah, the animation in that fight, there's there's the two big sections of it. Their first blows where they're going against each other and just the sheer speed of it. And I love, because this is something I think a lot of shonen anime wind up missing out on because it's easier to just do the zipping blue lines fighting each other and then go, oh my God, they're too fast for us to see. But I love that first they show us like in slow motion a big chunk of the fight and then pull out to zipping blue lines and Tanjiro going oh my god they're too fast for us to see and just the impact of that is so heavy and then the final one where he like comes at him like a big flame dragon is how they draw it and then the way he carves it all up and like the cutting and the sound effects and the and everything there is just unbelievably impactful and then there's this doesn't uh, Akaza like yell out like let out this like fucking demon death scream yeah. that like in the theater that is like one of the most like impactful moments of sound I felt in the theater in a while you just like feel it yeah because that's that moment where at the end of the fight there's this like it's such a great dynamic of this like desperate stalemate where Rengoku's impaled obviously Rengoku is going to die um like that's such a powerful moment when Tanjiro sees that and realizes uh, like this is it like there's no coming yeah. back from having your fucking um chest punched through the only reason why he's not dead is because the arm's still in there why Rengoku dies is because the arm dissipates after it gets far enough away from the demon um and so he, he's stuck and then Rengoku stabs him into the neck the demon tries to punch Rengoku Rengoku grabs the arm and they're stuck there as he's trying to get enough leverage to keep pushing through and then that's Tanjiro runs towards him Tanjiro has this that great moment where he yells to Inosuke, like, Inosuke, run! Like, for Rengoku, run! Run! Go! And they go, and that's when the demon gives that yell um, that it's clear he's been backed into a corner because he sees the sun creeping up. He, like, if Tanjiro and Inosuke could just get there, they might have been able to pin him down just long enough. Um, but he gives out that yell, rips his own arms off, and then flees into the forest. <sighs> this fucking movie show. Yeah. And then Tanjiro has the moment where he throws the sword and like it's wrapped in flame when he's well, the metaphorical yes. flame when he throws it and then it gets and I when he when it like stabs the way it like stabs the demon, I just like went under my breath like in the movie and I went, fuck. Like yeah. there was just like there's just an impact to it. It's like, oh my god, you know? Oh my god. It's so good. Yeah, it's yeah, that whole action scene, it's just one of the best action sequences i mean including like how good the animation is but it's just like the structure of it the pacing of it the choreography of it yeah um everything that goes into staging it it's just one of like the best animated action scenes ever like it's it's so impactful it's phenomenal i agree 100 percent um okay what else should we talk about with this film before wrapping up um one thing i wanted to mention is just the music of this movie 
I the score on the show is great, and we praised it. I think the score for the movie is even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really can't wait for them to get a proper soundtrack out. I don't think there is one yet for this movie, from what I've seen. I don't think there is. Um, but but it is it is incredible music. Uh, I think the main theme for Rengoku is so good. It has all these like gnarly kind of vocal things that go on for different parts of it. Uh, they work in Tanjiro's song, like uh, an instrumental version of it, especially during the scene where he is yelling into the forest. And I think that's part of what makes that scene so unbelievably powerful. Um, and this is all before you get to the closing song by Lisa Homura, which is amazing in and of itself. And I'm very glad they subtitled the song for theaters. Because often that is not done. And if you're not like following along with the meaning of that song, you're not going to be uh, punched in the tear guts over yeah. and over again. Uh, it's kind of like um, the, the closing song in uh, Persona 3, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a really great movie soundtrack. I was listening to, there's a, they did like some symphonic event where they, I, I found this on YouTube. There was like a 10 minute video of a live orchestra playing music from the movie. And I've been listening to that because it is just so good. I can't wait for a soundtrack to this movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree that like the score, and this is something I feel like in the past few weeks with Weekly Suit Gundam, we've noted this where it's true of the Zeta Gundam movies, particularly the third one. It's true of Double O Gundam, Awakening of the Trailblazer. It's true here. Like taking the like work that's been done for the film score or for the TV show, getting those people together and then like looking at, okay, what are the themes and elements we're taking from the TV score? Then what's the new music we're doing? How do we apply it to a movie? There's just like, like with the animation, there's just a focus on how can we best use this music at every given moment that I think like elevates everything. Um, It's the same composers from the TV show. So it's Goshina, who's an in-house composer that is on basically all the UFO table stuff. And then Kajiyota Yuki, who we talked about in Gundam Seed. uh, And then she's also done a lot of stuff on UFO table. She kind of made a lot of like what the Fate series sounds like on TV um, by expanding on some of the music from the visual novel, as well as doing the soundtracks for Kata no Kyokai. Um, so yeah, so the, all the like weird vocal stuff and like those stuff, that stuff, that is very much a Kajiura Yuki style. Like it's very clearly, um, her working on those parts because it's such like an iconic element. Cause she also did all of the music for the three Heaven's Feel mo- uh, movies that are also just the scores for those are unbelievable. Um, so she has been doing some killer fucking work in the past four years at UFO Table with these scores. Um, and, and yes, especially I think getting this instrumental version of Kamado Tanjiro's song um, that plays at the end of episode 19 and having an instrumental version that plays during his um, flashback when he realizes that, like, I need to escape and he runs away from his mother and Rokuta. And then at the end, it plays. Like, just being able to pull on this existing love for music from the TV show, mm-hmm. just it gives you this emotional dimensionality that the TV show couldn't have because it has to build that up. But here... They get to like weaponize that familiarity that you have from, well, here is the song that plays during the ending of like the best episode of anime you've ever seen, episode 19. Let's use that again here um, during like one of the best scenes in a movie you've ever seen, which is the end of this movie. But Homura, Lisa's song at the end, um, is just, I think, like a master anime song um, because it is. So she did Gurenge, the theme from the first show, as well as working with Kajiro Yuki to do the ending theme for the first season. Um, And then Homoda is a song I've been listening to a lot over the past six months because I just like her. Um, So I've listened to it a lot. Homoda means flame, by the way, for people that's like 
a very clear title. Yeah, the kanji is just fire. Yes. The, the title is just the kanji fire. Yeah. yeah. So so it's obviously it's a song made specifically for the movie. I love that like it's the only song that plays for the whole end credits. It's about five minutes long, and it just the whole credits play with that song, and then it just ends. And I don't know about your theater, Jonathan. Nobody left the movie during Nobody. the credits. Not not one person. And I don't think yeah. because it's like everyone's waiting for an end credit scene. Because I think it was pretty clear there's not going to be an end credit scene. Like you don't no. end the movie with the circular framing and all of that if you're going to have an end credits thing at the end. It's just like there's no way you get up and walk out of the movie theater while that song is playing. Because it's a part of the movie. It is like a part of what it is. Because as you say, you have the lyrics and the song is very much about someone. And I think it's written both... I think it applies both to Tanjiro's relationship with Rengoku, and I think one of the things that it really works well for is it also replies to Rengoku's relationship with his mother, because the song is about someone who has lost someone before their time, and them kind of despairing over that, but then also saying that you, the title of the song, Homura, like you are going to be like the fire in my heart that I'm going to carry with me into the future, that when in through when I struggle, when I grieve when I face things I feel like I can't overcome, you will be the fire in my heart that helps me overcome it. That's like what the chorus of the song is about. And it's like, my God. I, and so again, I kind of knew Red Goku's going to fucking die in this movie because this song is sad. The lyrics of the song are sad. It's such an emotionally impactful song. And I had listened to it a bunch. So then hearing it both as Rengoku's theme in the movie in an instrumental sense that it plays a couple of times was really effective but then having it like seeing it in its full context at the end of this movie and listening to the song in that context my god is it such a perfect song for this film i made the comparison earlier but i really do think it's a kimi no kyoku in in persona yeah. 3 it's a similar effect as that of like that song just ties the whole thing together in a really profound way um, you also, Sean, tweeted out um, yesterday this video that is very has 107 million views. Last time uh-huh. I checked, of of this series where it's it's called First Take and it's Lisa singing the song to uh, just a basic piano track. Um, and I like that version even better. And and I think the only reason why you wouldn't put that in the movie is that it would be illegal because everyone would die crying. Yeah. Because it is so powerful. Like this, you should watch the whole video because at the end she like, they, she stops singing and they talk for a little bit and she's just choked up like trying to like describe the song and like clearly, you know, this isn't just a gig where like she came in and like did a fun anime song. It's like, this is a really meaningful recording and it sounds like it. Yeah, no, it, it is my favorite version of the song because yeah, it's just this incredibly raw version that only has piano accompaniment um and and yeah it's really powerful she has also she's done a couple of songs for that channel because she has also done one for gurenge that is also very good i did i watched that it's so good yeah. oh my god yeah. yeah lisa is just like she's like one of the most impressive vocalists it, it like it's just her range is fucking insane um, because she's done like main theme songs for a bunch of anime um because she also she originally started working with ufo table on the fate stay night stuff um, because she did that for Unlimited Blade Works. So she's been done stuff with UFO Table a few times now, um, because I feel like they just know, it's like, man, you need someone who, like, has this incredible vocal range and can just, like, like stab your heartstrings with a musical knife. That's basically what you get Lisa for, and she nails it for this movie. Holy shit. Like, I have to imagine at this point, since they had her for the first season, they got her for the movie, it, they must just have to have her 
for as long as they're doing this, like as many seasons or movies or whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. She must just have to do the theme songs for all of them. Because also both Gurenge and Homura have been some of the most successful songs in Japan in terms of sales. Um, of the past two years also. So it's like, they're like platinum hits, like a million, yeah, hundreds of millions of downloads and things like that. Like they are just incredible songs. We didn't even, we didn't spend enough time talking about it last week, but as I said, Gurenge sounds like it was invented in a fucking lab yeah. to be the perfect anime opener. No, if they don't have her doing all the openings, maybe, maybe you can play around with the endings. That's fine. But like, she has to be the opening artist for all of these. And yeah. Um, and like season one only had the one theme song for, both cores yeah. so it doesn't seem like they feel pressured to like switch them up a bunch which is good um because it would suck if Gurenge wasn't there for all 26 um, i mean they got yeah, way I'm more very... money off of Gurenge than they would have by doing licensing for another song for the second op yes. like they like they were smart to just stick they were like we nailed it let's stick with it and milk this one song for all we can because it's going to make us a shit ton of money yeah i hope they do that for season two i guess we don't even know how long season two will be but however they do it um i assume it'll be another 26 um, I mean that's a good question How long They've done So they're up to volume 8 In the anime adaptation Through One season And one movie So I can't imagine This being more than like Three seasons And like one or two Other movies I'm curious how they Finish this whole thing up Yeah me too Obviously I haven't read Past this in the manga So I don't know Like Because I'm curious to know Are there other arcs That are like this That are of like A good movie length Because most Shonen series you wouldn't be able to do this because you wouldn't have no. arcs that would fit within two hour movies outside of like, because most Shonen series start with, here's a couple of arcs that are pretty short because you don't know how long it's going to be serialized for. And then once it's clear that it's landed and it's popular, that's when you do, here's the tuning exams in Naruto. Here's the soul society arc um, in, uh, in uh, bleach. Here's like the red ribbon army in dragon ball. Like that's where we go. Okay. Like let's do the bigger ones. So it's, pretty rare that you'd have something like this that you even do the movies so i'm really curious to when i as i start reading ahead are you going to have more arcs that are like this or is it going to start moving into here are a couple of longer story arcs as would be typical um but i feel like at this point in kimetsu no yaiba you would expect it to have been doing the bigger arcs and it hasn't it's been very focused tight arcs um so far all the way through the first eight volumes it makes me wonder and maybe this is crazy i wonder if they could end this thing on a movie mm-hmm because can you imagine how oh much God. fucking money a Kimetsu movie would make if it were the end? If it were the if it was a Kimetsu no Yaiba, the end, and that's the movie. Yeah. That would, I mean, it would break the box office everywhere. I, I have an even better title for you, Jonathan. The last colon Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie. <laughs> Borrow from the best titled Naruto movie for your best titled Kimetsu no Yaiba movie. Yes, um, that's that's really that should have been Avengers Endgame, the last Avengers. <laughs> yes. No, it's very important. The last Avengers, the movie. That's you have to get the Avengers whole structure the in there. <laughs> oh, Sean, this is so good. I am so happy to be talking about Kimetsu and having finally gotten in on it. And uh, you know, are we riding the hype train? Sure, this is a good train to be on. This is a hype train worth riding. Yeah, this movie is unbelievably good. Before we fully wrap this up, I feel like. We kind of have mentioned it a little bit, but I think we didn't haven't given him his full due. Hana Inosuke's performance is fucking Tanjiro in this movie. Unbelievable. It, it is one of the best performances in an animated movie I have ever seen. Like, they give... Because this... He's got such hard shit to play because, like, there are multiple scenes over the course of this story where Tanjiro is pushed to, like, really emotional extremes and really different emotional extremes, right? Like, this is... You both have the angriest we have ever seen him, both in the very ending with him yelling into the forest, but then also 
um, a great scene that I think is like done actually quite a bit better than the manga does it, where he's seen that vision of his family by Inmu, where they're like, you're yeah. pathetic, Tandra. Like, how could you possibly survive all that? And he just gets infuriated saying, it's like, my family would never say that. Don't you dare trample over what my family means to me. Um, and, and the way he just like snarls that line, it's so powerful. Um, and like having those moments and then also at the end of the movie, like he's, he breaks down into tears, like true tears. Like it's not a like sexy movie cry. Like he is on the ground, like sobbing his heart out because he has really lost this person. Um, and like that whole range of everything he gives as well as having some like really funny lighter moments earlier in the movie too. Like it's just a, I think a legendary performance that is building off of was already an incredible performance in the TV show. And he pushes himself even further here in a way I would not have expected it was like even possible. I think this performance is quickly pushing itself into the annals of like shown in history yes. with like Masako Nozawa as Goku and Mayumi Tanaka as Luffy. Just the, just that range and instant iconicism. I, it's, it's, and being grounded to though in the moment where it isn't becoming a character of itself or anything. It, it's 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 like humbling to hear. It's such a great anime performance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just Hanai Natsuki, you're fucking rocking it. Like it's just like it's incredible to me. Um, because it is those things where again, especially when you read the manga, you're like, some of these lines feel like they would be hard to deliver, and he does it so naturally because it's just like the writing I think is so good. The dialogue is so well written and it gets better as it goes. And he's got these multiple lines in this movie that to me like register partially because of his delivery, just like immediately iconic in a way that like you can you can tell that like Otaku are quoting this movie to themselves because like and specifically a lot of Tanjiro's lines, because they just immediately strike you as these like really iconic um pieces of dialogue delivered so perfectly. And he then goes and plays Uno while pretending to be Seto Kaiba. I mean, yes. this what can't what can't this guy do, Sean? Nothing. He's he's like, uh, you know, it's an obscure thing, relatively for like an American audience. But he is like my favorite celebrity. Like he's just like, how do you have? How do you both have like this incredible lead role in the hottest property in in Japan with Kimetsu Yaiba, and also one of the most popular video game YouTube channels at the same time? It's like, how is that a thing that one human being can do both of those things? It should be impossible, and yet he does it, and it seems effortless. Also, his Twitter is very good because he just posts pictures of his cats all the time. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps it up for Demon Slayer, colon, Kimetsu no, Ma no Yaiba, the movie, colon, Mugen Train. Still not a very elegant title in its English adaptation, but uh, a movie you should absolutely see. Uh, if, if you haven't already, it would be weird that you're at this point in the podcast. But, man, I, I love this movie. I'm probably going to have to be importing that Japanese yeah. Blu-ray so I can watch on my TV ASAP. And actually, if you're, if you're curious about it, the Japanese Blu-ray does have English subtitles. So if you want to get that, the standard version is actually not pricey by Japanese standards. Um, and you can pre-order that, and it will have your subtitles, so you'll, you're good to go. Um, yeah, I, this is, is awesome. definitely a movie I'm going to own. Like, it's like this, yes. you, you walk out of the movie theater having seen this and you're like, you know, I don't know if I'll, it would be feasible for me to go see it in the theater again, because it's like, there's a little bit to do, especially with like stuff at work is picking up again, because we're getting near the end of the semester. But like, there is no version of the future that does not have me owning this on Blu-ray. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Um, whatever we talk about next probably will not be this good. 
Um, what a what an awesome movie! Incredible movie, and I'm glad I've seen it because now I can finally continue reading the fucking manga. Because that was the hardest thing to do was to put that on pause for an entire week just to watch this movie. 